You're listening to the American Soccer Analysis Show. Dude, you're, you're the Tommy McNamara of podcasting. It's great. Thank you. Wait, what? With your hosts, Ian Lamberson. If you say one more bad thing about Mike Grella, I'm going to cut you. And Harrison Crow. Patrick Mullins is what happens when you least expect it. From the kickoff to the shootout, we're amped up. Welcome to American Soccer Analysis. I'm your host, Harrison Crow. <laughs> As many of you know, we've not been very consistent with this podcast over the last two years. But we're going to try something new here with this space. When we originally started out with this podcast, much of our focus was on current events, recent games, just trying to dissect what was going on in the narratives through a data-driven decision kind of perspective. The time away has given us time to think about how to improve this platform and kind of evolve it a bit. Over the next few months, we're going to try something a bit different. Our content will continue to be fixed upon the United States soccer landscape, but with stories through the perspective of analytics, data process improvement, and overall just uh, kind of challenging how we look at traditional methods within the game. But added to it a little bit of script and hopefully a little bit of production value. Most of our best work over the last eight, nine years has been planned, orchestrated, and worked on as a group, as a team. We've often described and referred to ourselves as more of a think tank than than anything else. As we've had time over the last year, we've put some thought into producing podcasts with more involvement from ASA as a whole and uh, those outside of it too. The goal is here to provide thoughtful content with multiple voices, more voices behind it. Working together, asking questions, thinking about the challenges our sport face and how we solve them, or in some cases, just simply improve upon the current paradigm, right? Nothing here is probably ever going to be revelatory or create something no one has ever thought about before, but we can get the wheels kind of started and and just get us thinking about things that perhaps maybe we haven't thought of in that way before and just maybe start talking about it in new ways. Sometimes we really can't get started on new initiatives or shifts in approach until we fully talk through what we're dealing with or what what we're trying to solve. Today, we're going to present a new episode, which is a bit different, but Also, very awesome because I feel like we've had a chance to involve more people in the process of making it. You're going to hear my voice way too much, and I'm sorry for that. But really, it's about those behind the scenes that have really uh, contributed and uh, done so to make this podcast come together. Uh, Drew Olson, Ian Lamerson, Jamin Moore, Sean Steffen, Simon Twaits uh, all contributed in different ways that just made this podcast come to be, come together and 
honestly, in my opinion, just be a more polished version of what we've done in the past. We're going to talk about the U.S. men's national team. This is specific to the men's national team and their various challenges, which quite honestly are different than the women's national team, who have unique challenges all their own. Those challenges deserve more thought and much more time. We will come back to that. I promise more content needs to be given to that space. And that's something that we have on our agenda. Our conversation surrounding national teams in general, but specific to the men's national team, kind of feels stagnant. And my goal today is simply to talk and better understand a few concepts that surround them. First, Bobby Warshaw from 21st Clubs is here to talk with me about approaching analytical theory while balancing human element in a national team. Then, later, I'll talk with Joe Lowry about tactical approach, recapping a game, and the difficulties of data at a national team level, which quite honestly are different than a club level. Afterwards, I chat with my good friend, Jamin Moore, and we recap these conversations while adding a few things that we thought about in PostScript. I'm not sure if this approach will make these podcasts all this long, but honestly, these conversations were just awesome. I think you'll really enjoy them. And I really appreciate everyone who has taken time out to listen to even a, a, a small piece of this. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. And without further ado, I give you my conversation with Bobby Warshaw. Hello, and welcome back to American Soccer Analysis. I'm joined by Mr. Bobby Warshaw, former player, MLS soccer analysis, and now, among other things, a podcast host alongside U.S. men's national team coach Greg Burrowhalter, which is amazing, by the way. You also work with the 21st Group. Would you mind talking a little bit about what is the 21st Group and what exactly do you do? I, I certainly can. But if I don't point out that you said analysis, anal, analysisist, then your fr- your other <laughs> friends are definitely going to give you crap for it. I, I was preempting that. <laughs> Steve, you just let that go. We can re-record any of the mistakes no, that I make. So that's... <laughs> you got to point it out. You got you to give you crap for it, but I just wanted to be the first to do it. I appreciate that. I really do. Because ASA like podcast slack will just uh, it's just Elliot making jokes about me all the time. That's that's all it is. Who's who's the best? Who's the wittiest person in the ASA slack? Oh, total football. T- he's up there. I think an underrated one is probably uh, Kieran uh, Doyle. I think he's up there as well. Um, do, you, do you call him total, total football? As I. I I know his name, but he's not out, so I don't know what to call. I don't know what I would call him uh, on this podcast. And we've we've been like in the nebulous uh, sort of way with it. Uh, so I'll res- respect his anonymity uh, as it is. But yeah, that's that's what he goes by, even in Slack. So. I know I know his name as well. I feel like I'm in a secret group right now. I know his name as well, <laughs> but because we exchanged Twitter messages about the book Debt, did you read Debt? I did not. I didn't understand a word in it. There's not a word. Uh, and I, was, I went to Toyota Football after and I was just like, tell me what I should have taken away from this 500 page book that I did not understand. He did a very good job. But I said, if you're going to tell me, if I'm going to, we're going to exchange, I have a rule in life that I have to know your name. You can't just be behind the Twitter avatar. 
Well, he's one of the few that I think that has that Twitter avatar, but it's not uh, to be trolly. It's 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 purely, you know, uh, to kind of differentiate uh, pieces of his life, right? Yeah, he does it. He's one of the – it's a very small Venn diagram of people who have a fake Twitter name and don't suck. And he's <laughs> in that He's in that diagram. Agreed. Agreed. All right. So what is what is the 21st group? What exactly? I mean, because he used to be the 21st club, right? Yeah. And yeah. then for some reason, they changed their name and now they're the 21st group. Yeah. Uh, so the the best way to describe it is that we are effectively management consulting for sports. So if you're a sports organization and you have a challenge on your plate, we hope that you come to us instead of McKinsey or BCG or Bain. And what we'll always do is we'll always apply data and evidence to whatever your your problem is. So if you have performance data, revenue data, commercial data, audience data, whatever it is, we'll make sure that that answer that we give is backed in real evidence and and has a real support system behind it. That seems, at least from, I I don't know you too well, but uh, what I do know about you, that seems like a perfect fit for you. (laughs) It is good. You know, I, I can acknowledge that it's been new to always have to apply data or evidence to what I say and believe. Uh, But it's definitely, I think my instinct to always say, wait, is that true? Is this thing that you're saying or that we believe, is it real and true? And I think forcing myself to always be able to have substantial evidence behind a recommendation or a thought has been very valuable. So that's what we do. And then the switch from 21st called 21st group was really just about expanding what we can do. Before, we were primarily about helping soccer teams or leagues, and now we can help and work with anybody in sports. We do all sports. We do the sporting side, the commercial side, the audience side, the M&A side. So uh, it's pretty broad at this point. And do you just – and forgive me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down this a little bit. Uh, are you just working in soccer or are you opening up – I, I ask because you, a lot of the guys within ASA, we come from – more broad uh, sports backgrounds? Are you diving into other sports or how does that work for you? Yeah, we all help with different things. I mean, my my primary focus, partially because of my skill set, partially because of what energizes me will still be the soccer component. But yeah, if there is a tennis project or a golf project, I will uh, lend a hand that I can. And I guess what I'll say is that we also do have a team of data scientists and engineers who are sport agnostic as well. So there's a lot of us who bounce between different sports and some experts and some just generalists who say, I'm not in your world, but what you're saying doesn't make sense. And if you can't prove it, then we need to start over. So I try, that's all to say that I do as much soccer as I can, but I do find it valuable to do other spaces as well. No, no, I, I I very much agree, and I think that that's been one of the one of the fun things about uh, the the group of guys and individuals that we have in in Slack that uh, we're constantly stealing from other uh, perspectives. Uh, lately, with having the Seattle Kraken up here, I've been getting into looking at hockey analytics and some of the different uh, some of the different perspectives that they have over there, and I, I think it's uh, I know that I've heard. Uh, some articles about uh, how England kind of used some of the different uh, basketball throw-in techniques mm-hmm. and some of the set plays to to kind of guide how they do set set pieces, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of things that you can kind of you, you can kind of borrow and, and marry and, and utilize for your own purposes, right? Yeah, exactly. 
All right. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Uh, second, we're here to talk about national teams. But I, I, before we quite dive into that, I want to talk a little bit about a philosophical question that sadly Alexi Lawless once posed. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's one of my favorite non-ridiculous questions that he has in his arsenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the formation and tactical approach of... Uh, of the players that you involve. Um, basically it comes down to uh, this kind of quintessential chicken or egg conversation, but um, which comes first yeah. the formation and tactical approach or the players you choose and, and select. And it, it, it's not necessarily a either or <laughs> it's posed as an either or, but um, I kind of feel like there, there's a middle ground there. Um, so where do you come down on that? And can you talk about some of the approaches and blending that these disparate philosophies? Yeah. I first want to just say that you made a, a comment. I think you said, unfortunately about Alexi and <laughs> we could talk, I would do a whole show about Alexi, but I do want to say first that one thing I'm not sure people know is that within the media and content world, Alexi is probably the kindest person out there. Uh, as a mentor, as just a friend to ask questions to, a support system, anybody, any random blog could ask him for their time and to, you know, to write or do something, he would do it. Uh, so I recognize that Alexi has become divisive, but I do just want to point out, like, as a support person in the world, he is maybe the kindest out there. Yeah, that, that was, uh, yeah, that wasn't about him specifically so much as it's the fact that he, that he can be divisive, and so using a question of his already biases uh, those listening in our, our on our conversations because then their mind goes to the the wrong place. Yeah, uh, but uh, it was a really good question that I, I feel like he poses because I feel like it yeah. steers the the ship in the conversation you want to have, right? Yeah. So I feel this is this is in that world of. Uh, different strokes, different folks, but uh, I am very much into the realm of, I know the way I want to play. I know my principles. I know generally how I want my team to win games. The way I feel that you do win games and how I want my team to execute to that. So I feel very comfortable saying that I will find players to fit the way I want to play. I think what we're finding now is that that is actually a wider spectrum than ever before. I think this introduction, not the introduction, but the evolution of the way we think about soccer to being principles-based with minor tweaks within the broader principles has allowed wider positional profiles. So for me, this one's very easy. While recognizing that other smart people do it differently, I feel pretty strongly that my team would be about picking players into the ideas that I have set out. So with that in mind, uh, a lot of people from the outside looking in, they, they kind of, I feel like generically, it, it's come to believe uh, it's easy to make a decision between two unique players, especially if one of them is considered to be in a better league. What do you think is the talent gap between the average starter, regardless of league? Uh, maybe the first or second best option not called into a national camp. Uh, if we were to put this in ASA terms and were to talk about a single game, are we talking about, uh, and specifically ASA terms, I mean goals added per 96. What type of disparity in value are we talking about them bringing? Yeah, this is a really good question. So 
objectively speaking, if you were to look over a season, A, probably the hardest part about recruitment and player evaluation is understanding the quality on the field that you are watching a game in. And anybody that's ever played youth soccer relates to this because you can, you know, you're in a tournament and you see the other two teams in your group playing and you're like, oh, that's not, you know, that's below us. And you get on the field, you're like, holy crap, this team is way better than I thought. That is true even at the professional level. You know, if you are the U.S. men's national team staff and you have to watch Giancone, uh, and I hope I pronounced that right, uh, if you have to watch him and say the second league in France, like who really knows how good the second league in France is unless you've played there and four other places. So it, it's always worth pointing out that probably the hardest part about evaluating ability is to understanding the difference in qualities across teams and leagues, especially when leagues are hugely divided on their quality, most at least. Uh, so, but for the most part, if you were to replace two players in the same band of ability, over a season, it's probably only a point uh, to put it into club terms on like a more normalized scale. Uh, it's usually something like a point that changes. It's actually not nearly as big as, as people expect it to be. But And we're talking about on a seasonal basis versus the national team. We're talking about a single game, right? Any given game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so that just brings that disparity even like even closer, right? It probably changes the probability by 1%. I'm making I'm, that's not that's a that's I don't have the exact answer, but off the top of my head, what I'm trying to say is that it's much smaller than people think it is. And I have my subjective piece to add to this. Oh, you have your, you have. <laughs> yeah. So my general, I think one of the truths to to sport uh, that we don't bring up enough is that uh, basically any play any inferior player within a band of comparability, which means that like you know you you and I are not in the same band to Kevin De Bruyne, right? But Kevin De Bruyne, De Bruyne is in the same band as uh, Fred for Manchester United. And that Kevin De Bruyne at 92% focus is not as good of a player as Fred at 98% focus. And that every 1% matters a ton. So if you don't have players who are really revving and fired up to go that game, I would, I would go and say it's actually advantageous to sign the player that is deemed to have less quality. All right. Well, I, I'm not sure if it's because national teams have these larger breaks between international dates or if it's because the sport is so driven by, you know, what have you done for me lately? But how do you feel about the process for how players get called into the respective national teams? Does it feel driven by narrative and recency bias or like what you had talked about? Uh, do you think coaches really are, are looking at these bands of players and uh, and more profiles? I, I don't want to be so ignorant uh, that I, I think that we're we're still caught up in a lot of narrative and recency bias, but it feels like there are still coaches on the national scale that still, that still very much look at that, that information. Uh, I'm sure it's not a one size fits all, but that that's my approximation. Um, my answer on national team call-ups, I'm going to, this is a totally different question, a totally different response, but how do you feel Arison, when you about, about foreign policy, when you hear about, you know, the U.S. government making a foreign policy decision. What's your first reaction? God, I need to know more about the world. Totally. It's gotten to know more about the world. And I have no clue what was in the morning briefing of the president today. And I probably don't want to know. 
Uh, and it's just, it's just about information. You know, we're making, we're basing our information off of probably the 40 minutes we watched on ESPN plus that, that weekend or the weekend before. And we don't know how they interact in locker rooms. We don't know how they're feeling. We don't know what their club coach says about them. So I, like anybody else, have opinions on what the national team and who they should call up. But ultimately, I come back to the point that I don't have the information. Uh, if I did have the information, might I might have made a different choice. But to claim that I could make a better choice with the information I have than the whatever it is, 10 full-time people who have almost all of the information just feels like a disingenuous claim to me. I know that's not fun, but that's largely where it's settled. No, actually, I think that's a, it's a really good inter, uh, question. It kind of leads me on, and I'm gonna I'm gonna pop this at you. Uh, when you look at a national team, let's let's say England, for example, how many people go into making the decision of who, which players they're gonna select? What do you mean by that? How many players are looking over the roster saying, no, I agree, uh, we need five central midfielders for this upcoming camp. Uh, these are the ones that we should select. Interesting. So you're saying the players, if, assuming that there's that there's 15 locks in any 25-person team, you're, you're asking what do those first 15 think of the other 10? Well, not the uh, – I'm asking how many different uh, coaches or uh, how many different people – involved in that federation right mm. involved with the national team that are supporting the coaching staff that are supporting mm. the that are helping influence the decision making of that coach to uh to collect that information and provide that information because as you said we don't know what that information is but how many different sources of information how many different people are influencing that decision yeah, that's right. I'd be really, I don't know the answer to that at scale. And that, and that's I'm, I'm totally springing this on you. So no, I don't it's know just, the answer. I mean, I can think about who I know at U.S. Soccer involved in this, and it's you know more than five, less than probably fifteen. And still, that's a, that's a lot, right? That's that's a lot of people. It, and you compared it to foreign policy, which I actually think is kind of uh, clever in the sense that um, there's not one person just pulling the trigger on stuff, right? There's a lot of different compartments uh, to this. And I think that's something that we don't think about. We we put the feet at, we, we put the blame at the feet of the head coach or, mm -hmm. you know, our, and, and, you know, that comes with the job, right? But we sit there and we say, well, John Herdman should have done X, Y, and Z with his players, right? He should have known that he needed X, Y, and Z. Uh, when, as you, as you pointed out, we don't know what he knew. We don't know what he knew. We knew we probably had, can surmise certain pieces of information, but we don't know all of it. We don't know what was in everything that was made. And to your point, right, there's there's multiple different people contributing to that information. So it, it's it's kind of interesting from from that kind of in the same vein. We hear like media and fans and especially around the U.S. men's national team talk about uh, some of these young players that are, are ready. Before we for transition, them. before we can I ask you a question? Go for Can it. I pause here? In your personal life or in your professional life, and I tee this up with, I listened to a podcast and it was I don't know, a personal growth podcast. This one, I would say is mostly, a, a, I felt like I was getting scammed by the host, but he made a, he made a good point, which was about the circle of people that you go to for advice. And I can say, I personally, when I have a big decision, I'll ask like 45 people. I'll ask the person that, that, you know, like makes sitting next to me at the, you know, at the bar and the person who's getting the bike out of the dock, like, I will ask anybody. And this person on the show said, no, stick to one or two people, people you really trust because everything else is noise. 
Where do you stand on that for when you have a big personal professional decision, the number of people that you like to go to? I actually, I'm kind of in the middle of that, right? I, I don't ask just anybody, but I do think I kind of sit down. Uh, so I, I took a job about two years ago, right before uh, everything kicked off with uh, w- with being shut in and living in our homes uh, <laughs> for indefinitely. Um, I took a job and it, it was it it was a little scary. It was a dream job in a way, but it was also it, it held a lot of uh, it had a lot of tags on it. And so what I did was uh, I wrote down with my wife a list of people that I wanted to talk to uh, about it and whether or not I should make that transition, whether I was ready for it. And so uh, and, and that list wasn't small. There was probably a good 15, 20 people on it. Um, and it comprised of friends, it comprised of people I looked up to, mentors, uh, individuals that uh, I didn't know very well, but had a good beat on their organ on that organization. So, um, yeah, I kind of come down somewhere in the middle because at a certain point in time, there is noise, but I think you have to filter that and you have to kind of pick out what can also be the signal. Yeah. Do you watch Game of Thrones? <laughs> you do no, no no i laugh i laugh because actually among my friends i'm actually kind of an outcast i stopped uh after i got back from a deployment i stopped uh in season two and i think everybody at the time thought i was stupid and i just didn't ran out of time uh for it personally and uh i feel like i dodged a huge bullet wow that's a that's a that's a thought there but uh, this is the way the place i take this is that going back to the point about coaching is just how hard it is to be the person ultimately responsible. So we all, we all can seek counsel, but then when you truly are the leader, the executive of a group, you still have to make that decision and ultimately follow your instinct. And that's what I find just really interesting about people in these executive positions, which effectively a head coach is, is how do you take the counsel of whether it's five or 20 or 40 people, but then ultimately know that it's your butt on the line and you need to make the decision that's right for you and your vision. No, that's fair. That's fair. I'm going to be, I'm going to be processing that for, uh, for at least a couple of days. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to be tr- absolutely truthful about, uh, about that with you. It's, well, the only reason I say that is one of the pieces that I hope people get out of listening to the show with Greg is that it's part about soccer, but then I hope it's just part about these elements that are relatable to everyone one of which is is leadership and how do you go about the process of making these hard decisions you know i thought his answer about about uh west mckinney um missing the games was honest and he ultimately he made a comment where it's we didn't put it to the team we didn't think it was fair to ask the team we felt like we had to make this decision so anyway that that's just a tangential thought to all of this was man like being that final executive is something that we probably don't know how hard it is until you're in those shoes. And just I don't even for the know record, how we got to this topic. <laughs> I just I, I'm really I'm really amazed at how transparent he is. And I feel like one if Doug McIntyre would stop talking about it, first of all, that would really help everybody out a ton. Yeah, Doug screwed us. Yeah, <laughs> he really did. But if because he now knows that people listen to this. And so he's probably good. I I hope you can you can prevent him from clamming up. But uh, in that same vein, right? Uh, we hear from some of the media, some of the fans, and I'm using this as my transition. <laughs> We're gonna try try to get this back on on track. Uh, 
we talk about some of these young players, right? Uh, McKinney was once there. They're ready for the national team. You know, you hear player X is doing really well or player B is doing well. How difficult is it really to determine if a player is quote unquote like ready for that sort of very, very big challenge? Or if they're just going through the everything it happens is good for me right now because we've all had that in, in our profession to where we just hit the streak where everything kind of goes right for us. And how do you kind of divide that from this is so an example I'll give you is, and you can tell me if I'm just spoiling fun times. If a player, maybe 19 or 20 that say they're in the air divisi, they score and people love scoring and, and it's great to see uh, success of any kind to happen to a young person, but especially a, a young, potential, promising person. How much does that goal matter? Aside from it being a cool milestone, where does that data become information or, as you said earlier, evidence that they're ready? Well, I feel like, okay, I'm going to parse these couple different things that you said. Okay. Because I think one question was about trusting young players which is mostly about a theme, which I think you brought up earlier around sample size. And the other is when can you use data to help make a decision? And when is that, when is the objectivity of it worthwhile signal opposed to just a false or red herring? Am I getting those two pieces? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So on the, on the young players, I'm, I'm actually, I'm just going to put this back on you. I'm going to put you on the spot because one <laughs> thing I think that happens and I'll use, I used to give, the guys at MLS have a really hard time about this with Gio Dos Santos. And they're like, Gio's such a bad signing. It didn't, you know, what a, what a, and I'm like, dude, I'm going to go find your receipts because you cannot tell me in good faith that you would not have signed Gio Dos Santos if you were the LA Galaxy five years ago. It was obviously, we were all thought it was an incredible signing, right? And it, it, it feels like it's one thing to talk about the theoretical of it. So I'm just going to say, okay, right now, Joe Scally has had really a month, a good month in the Bundesliga. It's been a hell of a month, but really just a month of real professional soccer. Would you call him in and, and start him in on the road at Jamaica? Is that what you would do? Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I don't want to cop out. I don't know. I know that I, I loved that uh, Berhalter went with uh, went with Yedlin uh, for Mexico. Um, I, I will say I, I actually thought that was a, the right decision at the time. Um, as far as Jamaica, I think that's a little bit harder just because you know that the the talent gap's a little bit uh, – uh, there is one, uh, first off. And second off, uh, it's maybe a little bit easier to get him uh, into that game. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I don't know. I can see logic going either way with that. But that being said – I don't know if I would have called him in to begin with. And maybe I'm in the minority with that. So there, there's two parts. It just seems to me that when it comes to young players, and we could do a show on the database reasons that you should people should play young players, the performance reasons, the financial reasons, the, the commercial opportunities. But from a human perspective, being a head coach is the pinnacle of your life. It's the pinnacle of your professional life, at least. And the notion that Somebody is willing, and I'm going to do these two parts of this, that you're willing to put everything you've worked on in the hands of a, of a young person who has a, only actually performed at a certain level for so many games, but also a lot of the time hasn't shown up early 
hasn't distributed or demonstrated great professionalism, hasn't demonstrated that they really understand what's on the line and the livelihoods and the lives are on the line. Just as a human, in our rush to talk about playing young players, I don't think we ever actually think about, oh crap, if I was that manager and I had my salary and my mortgage and my family that was on the line for results, what, what would I value? So number two is as a manager, and this is a line from Ziggy Schmidt, which I've said before, but Ziggy once told me really all experience is, is predictability. That if you have a hundred games, I know what I'm going to get. And as a manager, I want to be, I can plan around mediocre players and mediocre performances. I can't plan around unpredictability. So I'd rather play a seven that I know is going to be a seven than a potential nine that might be a three. And that to me is just like, if I'm a coach and I trust that I'm a good coach, I at least want to build a plan around what I understand and what I know. So I don't fault a manager for ever feeling that they can overcome a lack of quality as long as they have predictability. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons on why you should play young players, especially if you have job security and a real cohesive plan at your club. But from a human side, I just I I always feel the need to point out those two things because they're important in the conversation. I agree because there's a lot of things that sports, for whatever reason, we always have this idea that it's different than our lives mm-hmm. uh, that we lead outside of sports. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I work IT, I, 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 I love work where you're in the networks. And I think we have to take a lot of these principles that we associate in our daily life as we continue to grow as professionals and bring them back to how we consider decision-making being done at the national team level, at the club level, because, man, they're dealing with the same struggles that we are. Um, it, it's just defined a little bit differently totally. uh, within the person their out there listening, Yeah, the person out there listening in their tech job, right? <laughs> Do you give your – when you have a report with a major you know, BD opportunity or an investor or a CFO – do you give that report to the person that's been at your company for three months, fresh out of law school or fresh out of, you know, GSB? No, you know, so it's, it, it's, we all need to have inherent trust. And in sports, especially in soccer, there are five reasons on why you should play young players, um, which I believe, you know, if, if, if when I talk, when I, we work with clubs, like we clearly outline the, the risk and the advantages to doing it. But anyway, I appreciate that you, referenced it to our daily lives so uh, you also talked about like when does uh, about utilizing that data to make the decisions especially when you're determining that approach to readiness right so if you're doing an evaluation on on new people that have come to your organization and you're trying to determine whether or not they're ready for that next step what what are those signs that you're looking for, especially when it's only been a month? You know, you talked about Joe Scally only been really having a month. Yeah. What so, makes him a better candidate to be called in as the right back for the U.S. men's national team than, uh, goodness, Nick Lima again, right? You're talking about. Uh, that was a real that was a real brain fart from you, huh? That's the first right back that came to your mind. No, it, it's like 19 it, it, of them now. I, I, I have a few, but I didn't want to sound stupid, right? Like I, I was trying to find somebody that was a little bit on the uh, on the average side, kind of like what you talked about uh, already. And I'm I'm going to come back to that, and we're going to have an off off mic conversation uh, about predictability and, and uh, predicting 
mediocre, I think is what the, the word that you chose, uh, performance. And I, 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 I don't, I don't, I hate saying that because in a way, cause I feel like I just called, uh, Nick Lima specifically mediocre. Uh, and we, we could have a lot of conversations about different, uh, variants of performance, but when you're trying to figure out and determine whether or not they're ready for that, like, what are those signs in such a small window? How do you determine that? Uh, is there a way yeah. that you would do that? So, man, we can, we spend a lot of time as, as a company measuring the right, you know, whatever you want to call it, the right KPIs for this or the right level changes. And you can, you can limit as much risk as possible. I think the best answer is though, that you, you're always taking some leap of faith and you're, yeah, you're just, you're always taking some leap of faith. So there are things you can do to understand what the risk might be, but really you just have to bet on that person and bet on yourself to get the most out of them. That feels like a cop out. Do you want to know, do you want to know the specific metric? I mean, no, I'm not looking for specific metrics, but, but, but here's the thing, right? There's such a wide variance. If you want to go into data and you want to take a look and say, well, does this player measure up? You can look at some key KPIs, but KPIs often don't stabilize in such a short period of time. So are those KPIs really worth investing in over that short uh, period of time? Or are you truly going with the human factor at that point in time? Well, I, the, I mean, I suppose, it, I suppose it changes from player to player, right? To go back to the answer that I gave, I find it really important in implying objectivity to all of these things. What, what upsets me is people talk about the fact that numbers should lead and numbers shouldn't form, but you still need good humans to make the decision and execute the decision. Oh, yeah. And this to me is this to me is still one of those things where we can give you all of the measurements, but if you're waiting for a pure, if you're waiting for a pure sign that a player is ready, it, it doesn't exist. And you, as a human, need to know need to know how to maximize whatever situation they come into. So that's why I took that's why I, I took that side of it because this to me is one of the okay. So that's that's a much more fair qu- uh, answer and response. I, yeah. I I can I can very much agree with that from a human element at yeah. a certain point in time. Uh, it, it, it's about understanding where they're at and having that relationship with someone to where that they you can make that judgment call. Yeah. Um, so I'm sorry. You can ask 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 the specific <laughs> question that you want to get that you want here. No, no, so I, I think no, you're on either, a good track. So I apologize if there, there's no specific question. Really, I, I mean, and I'm just going to follow this along, right? The, the real, realistically, it's about recency bias, right? And, and playing into the decision of uh, making your roster and selecting players. How much recency bias should play into that? Um, does one good month? warrant and and at a certain point in time i think that as you said it's not just about the recency bias or it's not about numbers specifically it can just be about in that short window whether or not you have that relationship with someone to where you can start forming uh forming and starting to understand okay they they've obviously grown and developed but outside of that they also have this really nice resume of what they've also done I think what's happening in my brain is you're using the word recency bias, and I think that you are saying that picking a person off of a more recent burst or bubble is a bad decision. Not necessarily, and I think that I I, I feel like sometimes that we have uh, two different warring perspectives mm-hmm. to where recency bias is absolutely bad, or mm-hmm. um, they're on this 
uh, and I used in the show notes, I used a hot hand, right? The hot hand fallacy to where, you know, you have a shooter in the NBA that's uh, it's constantly making buckets. And so you continue to pass to them, right? Uh, assuming that they're just going to continue to, to, to go on this form when in reality, uh, it just, it, it can't sustain itself. Uh, although there's, there's a lot of differenting, uh, really some really good, uh, white papers on, on that subject, but, uh, I digress once more. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I like the idea that recency bias isn't necessarily good or bad. It's just another piece of information. Why is recency? I'm not, this isn't clicking in my brain. Why is recency bias another piece of, piece of information? Be, well, you don't think what, how behavior has changed and how performance has changed within a short term is important? I do think it's important. So, I mean, so how someone has performed within a short period of time, it, it, that's how I would look at recency. And because they've been doing so well, or maybe because they've positively shown themselves, uh, it, it plays into a bias, right? You, you're more apt to say, you know what? Kevin's been really good around the office lately. Like he's just been Mm -hmm. staying. Well, I mean, you laugh, but you know, he's been staying late. Yeah. He's been turning in work early. These are things that on, as you said, on the human factor, they incline you to want to like the person. And, you know, if you, if you're not necessarily, if they have a neutral personality to a point to where uh, you, you don't uh, like them for their, just their personality or dislike them just for their personality, as we're all apt to do sometimes it can provide, it can provide a platform to where, um, Oh, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. I'm just going to point out. It feels like what you're using for recency bias is just another way to say form is a player. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. Let's use that. Yeah. A player in form. I've always thought the notion of being in form was overplayed, if that's what you're asking me. Oh, I, I mean, I have as well, but I, I also think that um, the older that I get um, and, and thinking about how it's how it's been utilized, maybe maybe there's some merit to it as well. Can I ask you a question? So I've never actually read the book on the hot hand fallacy. Does the hot hand fallacy measure each next shot? Yes. So if I make a shot, there's zero impact on whether I'm going going to make the next one. Correct. Okay. Well, I mean, there is there is factors into it, right? But it, it, the the last shot doesn't factor into it. Whether or not you made the last shot doesn't factor into it. Say that again. Say that sentence again. <laughs> the la- the last shot that you made doesn't influence the next shot. Fascinating. That's what I, I thought that's what it was, but I'm, I'm realizing in this moment that I don't actually know the methodology they used. Yeah. So, and that's, I mean, there's, there's, there's a couple different, uh, how about once but, you hit three in a row, if you hit three in a row, are you more likely to make the fourth? Why would you be? Because one doesn't increase confidence. So I guess one thing I'm, I'm trying to get over and I feel like Alex Rodriguez got slammed for a tweet he had about this, about a guy's at bat and a rod was like, you could never tell an athlete that confidence doesn't matter. And I agree with that, right? Confidence. Well, turns, yeah, because you're an athlete. <laughs> I, I could have been. Yeah, in my this is this is obviously there's, a vein. There's your bias right there. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's also true. Like when I was at confident at my best, I could have been a good a good MLS player. When I was not confident, I was a bad USL player. I mean, it's a giant ban that happens due to confidence. So I, I you'll it's really hard for me to believe that my next performance isn't always slightly 
more likely to be better when I was feeling good about it. No, I, I, I've, so when I talked about there being additional, uh, there, there's been additional, uh, articles and white papers on it. It's, it's not a, it's a continually broached subject, uh, Mm -hmm. that I kind of see people go back and forth on. Uh, We're just two dudes who don't really understand what it is and just need to go double check it. There you go. That's that. There you are. Well, I think, I think Matthias, uh, who does the the majority of our models is an Mm -hmm. actuary. Um, I think he has a very, very firm fixed position on this. But uh, no, I, I agree. I agree with you on the confidence stage. I think that my best work as a professional has done uh, on the back end of feeling really confident. Um, but to be perfectly honest, when I look back now on some of those, I don't necessarily think uh, it was necessarily because I was confident. I think it just kind of was a result of where I was at in my professional career. Man, I got like five questions on what the hell the difference between those two things is, but we'll do we'll save that for another day. We've already we've already gone down the rabbit hole of, of <laughs> ignorance on this topic. Uh, I'm sorry uh, I took I, us down here. Simon Simon is going to have just a hell of a time editing this podcast, and I can't yeah. wait to hear sorry, how it Simon. Goes. <laughs> uh, all right, so we'll, we'll try to. This is what happens, Harrison. When I don't care about when I don't care about this is here's this like a, a thing behind the veil. When I don't care about the like the potential of a brand anymore. Then I'm just like, I'm going to talk about whatever I want to talk about. And what I want to talk about right now is I want to talk about what I didn't know about the hotshot fallacy. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. And if that loses Twitter followers, man, that's fine. <laughs> I can't. I hope you do a series of tweets uh, just on the hot hand fallacy now. I, I hope that that I hope you just bring the heat on that. Well, it's obvious. Now I'm just embarrassed because it's obviously something I should know more about, and I don't. So now I'm about to spend my Friday night reading about the stupid hot hand fallacy. <laughs> well, I, look, you, you got your booster. It's it, you're going to be in bed anyways. It's a good. It's a good time just to relax. Yeah. You know, educate yourself. You're a reader. You're already probably going through three books as is, right? My foggy brain that wants is the hot is the stupid white paper. Yeah, what books are you reading right now? How many books do you read at once? Uh, at once, one. I, that's not true. Uh, I, I pick books up and I, I, I drop them regularly and then come oh, back to them. You're good at dropping books. That makes me so jealous. Uh, I, I get bored. Yeah. Like I, I get bored. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, I'll get really into a specific book and it will keep me for a certain period of time. And then I'm just, uh, I need to move on. Mm. Makes and me so, jealous. I, I, I'm glad to hear that because some, I get, I get picked on, uh, no. quite frequently. Stopping books, stopping books is an important skill. So if you often hear people, elder people, they're like, you know what I learned to do when I was older? I learned to stop caring about life and I was able to just stop reading a bad book. Bless you. Okay, oh, back, that's, back to whatever, back no, to no, I want to, I want to, so this is, this is a conversation <laughs> that I've had a couple times with people and I don't even care at this point in time. Uh, <laughs> failing is important. <laughs> yeah. And not just failing, but failing fast and learning to quit. That that was that was something that uh, I picked up a few years. Well, I don't know about five or six years ago. That was something that reading about was very interesting to me. Yeah, we are that. we are so far like oh, yeah gone. Be honest. All right, All right so we're gonna tra- sample we're, size is recency bias. We're gonna we're gonna throw recency bias out the window. Okay. Uh, I will talk a little bit about uh, the perspective of goals. Mm-hmm. So when we're 
evaluating talent and the impact to a team, a lot of times we look at goals and it seems like from the outside looking in, we overvalue goals. Now, mm-hmm. I, I really honestly, if you agree, I, I kind of think that you might, but how do we shift the conversation to having me- more meaningful conversation, having more meaningful KPIs as you, as you kind of already referenced on the national team in these very short times. I mean, what we only had two games, right. With the national team this, this past month, how do, how do we really restructure the conversations that we have uh, to meaningful points in these games and how do we pluck them out? Why, why let's start with the premise of why you think the goals are overvalued or whatever. Give me another sentence on that part. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I, I, so from my perspective, goals are, and, and look, goals are an important part of the game. I'm not trying to minimize their impact, but uh, a player, let's say in midfield, who's connecting, finding space, sending passes mm-hmm. through to the attack to create chances, mm-hmm. potentially could have the same, if not more value mm-hmm. in that possession. How do we start having conversations with real merit comparing that midfielder and that attacker that scored yeah. the goal? That's fair. Because to your point, uh, most models are still bad and give a lot more weight to finishing actions. So, because finishing's fake, but that's that's branding. Sorry. Uh, um, yeah, it's a really good question. So, a buzz topic around a lot of clubs right now, which they're really all trying to figure out, is this concept of, of codifying the game model. Have yeah. you have you you've had this conversation? Uh, we we've had it. Yes. Okay. Uh, so for those that are listening in on this conversation, uh, would you mind expanding a little bit? Yeah. So game model is a buzzword, which is effectively just means your style, your identity on the field as you play. And if you think about uh, what that game model might consist of, the principles that you value, whether it's against the ball pieces of certain pressing actions or certain block interception actions or with the ball, breaking lines, bounces, whatever it might be that those things that you value, you need to codify, and then you need to actually create a way to track them. So again, if we value breaking lines through the central channel, every time we do that, we would find a way to make sure that we get a plus one. And then at some point, you think about how you benchmark that, whether it's against your league or other elite teams or yourself. So then you're saying we're a team that values breaking lines and central zones, uh, but we only did it four times. And we know that to be successful, we can do it seven times. So that's something that a lot of clubs are talking about right now. Um, sure. Traditionally, uh, you know, for most of the existence, we just measure performances by goals and we're probably, you know, a decade in to now measuring it by expected goals uh, and expected goals is now, a a somewhat hollow way to go about it as well because goals are generally scored from zones or moments. So if you just take the quintessential Manchester city that we can all picture in our heads, the ball across the goal, um, if they go through their possession phase, they set up the moment in that, what I think of as a man city zone on the side of the 18 and that ball doesn't make it across the goal. They generally will not get an expected goal value for that but it was a very positive moment for them. So now the question is, how can we measure what actually are these positive moments to make sure we account for the quality of the performance? Because if expected goals are better than goals because they take out the randomness of finishing, 
now we can acknowledge that sometimes you actually like that final clinic, that final clinical part, the pass is also so, not random, but doesn't always come off. But our performance as a team was more about, did we get into those moments at all? Sorry, that was a long answer. That's how we need to start looking at the game. And obviously we feel the same, right? We, we've we been working on goals added for you know the last couple of years. It, it's constantly something that I, I think internally we're constantly uh churning on and working on and thinking about and and i think with uh a lot of the data that's starting to become available publicly we're, we're trying to figure out new ways to incorporate that uh with space and player movement and what else is happening, not just on the ball from an event standpoint and, and what they did with the ball, but how players reacted and how they moved in accordance with that. And, and these are these are uh, these are data points. This is information that we need to that we need to consider and think about. But it's not information that we're necessarily uh, able to put into a spreadsheet right now <laughs> and, and be able to map and be able to show you on one of Elliot's really beautiful diagrams that, that he, that he publishes. Right. It, Great it's diagrams. Just, Love those things. Right. Uh, his graphics are so on point. It's, it makes me jealous, but uh, that's, I mean, that's honestly, that's, that's what everyone's trying to do and trying to figure out uh, the best way to do that right now. And I don't think that there's no, I, I, I'm sure that there's a lot of people uh, on on the private side that are that are kind of figure this out and kind of are already working on, on tweaking their iterations of this. But um, I I think from a public perspective and from um, I won't even the media side having these conversations, it seems like it's a little bit difficult because it's a little bit harder to point to how many times. Uh, Miles Robinson got caught out of uh, out of position. How many times, you know, uh, player X got caught out of position, right? Um, when you have that at your disposal, and you say, "Well, in the thirty sixth minute, and the forty seventh, and the forty ninth, and then the fifty second, and it's not just that he got caught out of position. It was, oh, he was walking towards another player, or here in this situation, right? It's just kind of what you had said earlier. It's not about data leading. It's about coupling the information that you have with specific points that you can go back and you can look at and you can know the human element. What was he necessarily doing wrong that he can improve upon, right? Yeah. And from a media perspective, how do you, knowing that there is an intention that wasn't just, um, hey, I'm going to play bad right now. It was, hey, I'm trying to compensate for this shift in a defensive shape. Or something in in yeah. that perspective, right? There, there is a human element to that, as yeah. as you as you brought up a couple yeah. times. Well, you're also. I think there's two parts here. One is the team analysis and the team report. Another is player analysis. And team analysis is much farther along than player analysis. Player analysis is pretty far, regardless of what people. It's pretty far from being as useful as the pieces you just mentioned. So, but the team stuff is much closer. So I just wanted to split that out, that there's a way to evaluate team performance and then player and then individual performance. So we've been talking a lot about uh, player performance in this, and, and we'll get to teams here in a second. But when you're trying to talk about two different types of players uh, that are in the same band, one is more dynamic and one is a little bit more consistent. How are you making that determination for uh 
who is it is it and you talked about this earlier with regards to predictable play right mm-hmm. does it matter the other 10 players that are on the field whether or not you go with that player that's more dynamic or whether or not you play somebody that's a little bit more consistent well the the, all the, the pieces all fit together so the way here's how i would think about it and again this is my personal pieces together but my principles of play are effectively, and we'll call we'll call this the progression phase, which is roughly we're somewhere near the midfield. We have the ball. We're in possession. The other team is in block, and we are trying to create a chance here. My principles of play in this moment are left, right, center. You know, some people use the word triangles. Triangles doesn't work for my brain. Um, options: left, right, center, between the lines, with depth. So I know that these are the pieces that my players need to think about or would need to think about in this moment. And then it's my job to think of, to, to put them in positions to succeed and understand what they're good at and what they want to do. Right. So we'll take a Jordan Morris, right? Like which of those, which of those roles is Jordan Morris more inclined to want to do? <laughs> I have my opinion. I think that, uh, there is, there is an idea of, uh, of who Jordan Morris is conceptually. Does that make sense? Well, Jordan, I think he's a width and a depth guy. Yes and no. Uh, okay, yeah, sure. Let's go with that. I, I don't want to belabor this. <laughs> you don't I, think? You don't think that Jordan's at his best when he's, when he's in space? No, I definitely agree. Uh, he... I, so I, I need a little bit more definition then for what you need for width and depth. Uh, so depth is like what, what Greg has been calling verticality. So okay. depth is a space behind the imposing defenders and width would be just the player stretching the field horizontally. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I could, I, all right. I could get behind that definition. Yes. And since Jordan came back from his first injury, he's been much, he's been very good at combining centrally, but his, I think at a high, at a high level, his biggest value added to a team is width and depth. Yes. Okay. Which yes. is different than I think probably a Brendan Aronson. Or really the way I think Tim Tim Weah wants to play. And I, I don't know these. This is my personal assessment of them. So that's just a thought that I, I know of, for wingers, for example, I know which one is more likely to be the width depth guy. I know which one is more likely to be the between the lines guy. And then maybe I do go with two between the lines guy and my striker needs to be the depth player. Right? So it's all to say that uh, this idea – I mean, the player profiles always need to to effectively fill these buckets for your team. Well, so to kind of go back to what you were talking about beforehand and player uh, analyzing players and how we do that with certain metrics is kind of uh, it's not really there. So then are we using should we be using metrics then to better define what players are successful at or what their skill sets necessarily are? Can that be done? I mean, is there is there a difference in those two? Say that. Say that can you give me another sentence on that? Yeah. Okay. So defining their, what do they, what do they do well? Like, can you parse individual moments? And yeah. you call you called Jordan Morris a uh, width and depth, right? Can you look at a specific player and say, okay, in this function, in this phase of play, and you know, principles of play. And and you guys talk about this on your podcast. I'm going to assume a little bit that you associate those principles in those phases. And maybe you can identify some of the specific skill sets 
uh, suited yeah. in those roles to those players. So you're basically using asking, data. yeah, you're, you're kind of asking how do you measure success? How do you measure performance? Not 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 necessarily because I, I don't necessarily think that uh, you because how many times you beat a player one v one doesn't necessarily make you good. Would you agree with that? Okay. We'll keep going. Keep going through a lot of thinking here. (laughs) So if you beat a player 1v1, that is just a skill that you have. And to be perfectly honest, it's one that's that's not very common. Now, there there are players that can do that in moments and they have skills, but analytically speaking, most defenders win those 1v1 moments. So if you're able to beat a player 1v1, and you show prominence more so than other people in those 1v1 moments, that is a skill. And that could possibly go into part of your phases of play, saying this player is very good 1v1. If we can get them isolated, they could maybe we could do X or we could do Y or we could do Z yeah. with that. I think just, to, and I, God, I, hope, I hope I'm hearing this right. And I'm not, please stop me if I am. I mean, my response to that is that, you as as a club should understand where you want the different where the different proportions of goals tend to come from and where you want them to come from in which case you understand that you need to generate a certain number of activities so if you through the model you've set up do value uh cutbacks because everyone values cutbacks that's a bad example but um, <laughs> then you know that that usually takes four 1v1 moments game and then you need to find somebody who's better at 1v1s, in which case 1v1 take-ons and percentages is a valuable metric for you to to measure success. Right. It's not necessarily identifying that that individual is, is a good soccer player overall, right? You're, you're not necessarily weighting them. You're, yeah. just, you're just identifying a specific skill set that you Correct. want to incorporate. Correct. Yeah, that's true. So what we would do at um, – what we add into – add into that at 21st group is our main model is predicated on just player a player's overall contribution. So there's a lot of things that you mentioned that's really hard to pick up uh, through event or tracking data. And ultimately the, the point of the sport is to win. And there'll always be things that we don't understand about uh, a performance and contribution to overall victories. So our model does its best to just account for a player's quality. So you, you can look at take-ons, you can look at overlaps, you can look at line-breaking passes, um, but then we would always pair that, at least for us professionally, with just the player's baseline quality. How does that quality change based off the level that they're, they're competing against? It's, me- it's standard. So everyone is on the same table. It's a, a single worldwide measuring barometer. So irregardless of League A or League B, this Correct. is just a skill set that they have. It accounts, yeah, it accounts for league team quality. Based on quality. based based upon your experience, is that is that something? No, uh, no, it, no, no. I, I'm not saying that's based off your experience. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I didn't make the model to be like you know, <laughs> right. Norway gets a point eight. <laughs> that was something. Right. <laughs> I'm not trying to put that evil on you. So. When you look at that type of a model and you say, irregardless of the league that they're associated with, mm-hmm. this is a skill set they're, they're in, how much does the league factor into your your decision as a maybe a coach or a decision maker into whether or not you like a person who has a really high skill set yeah. yeah. versus a player that's already in your league that already shows uh, mm-hmm. a positive adept 
you know, adeptness uh, to that to that skill yeah. that you're looking to incorporate? So I'm not sure this answers your question specific, specifically, but the two thoughts that come to mind are that one, um, the, the notion of looking at leagues is a little bit of a false uh, fool's errand because most leagues have giant splits in quality. So if you just take, you know, you, you mentioned the Eredivisie earlier, the Dutch league, um, that stretches from Ajax, who's roughly the fifth or sixth best team in the world, to teams that are closer to USL quality. So in general, looking at looking at a league or thinking about it in full leagues is a challenge. And on number two, it's at the trends on how players adapt, which I think is what you're asking, is actually pretty different by league. Some players, it's okay to bring in a new player and expect quicker adaptation. In other leagues, it's harder. And you just have to you just have to measure that league by league. No, I you know what? I actually wasn't that intelligent and didn't ask that, but that was a really great follow-up and a way to way to pick that apart because uh yeah, I mean that's that is the thing, right? Is how well uh, a player will adapt. I mean, that, I remember when uh David Akam came over and that was the question, right? Was whether or not he could adapt his skill set. Yeah, incredible. He adapted. Oh, yeah, very much. I played right? I played Akam in, in the Swedish Cup in Sweden when he was at Helsingborg. And it was there's moments in your life when you're on the field and you just feel blessed to be on the field with that person. And I was it was unbelievable. Like being on the field with this dude when he was in his prime, just out of right to dream, was just unbelievable. What was your thoughts when so completely sidetracked more? What was your thoughts when he came to Chicago? Did you just ultimately think he was gonna rake or were I mean, what was your, what was your general disposition on that besides good for him? Uh, I think it was awesome for the league. I was like, wait until this dude, like he's just, he was, he's incredible. I mean, I was just excited. I don't know. I'll I'll boil it down to that. No, that's, that, that's, that's totally fair. Wow. So thinking about player pool and depth, as we kind of wrap this down, it's one of my favorite subjects. And, And the reason for that is just, I feel like on the national team, honestly, you can kind of look at national teams and, see their hierarchy of how good they are and you kind of already know how good they are and where they are in the uh in the rankings based upon their depth because that depth is just it's correlative to success in tournaments and in my experience do you see that the same way or do you have a different opinion you just pulled off correlative well that's all that's all i got out of that question was how smooth you made that word sound (laughs) Uh, um, Elliot, please write this down. I said something smooth, and uh, yeah, like you, you, you apologize earlier for whether or not you pronounce somebody's name. You realize? Have you ever listened to the show ever? Uh, you not. can say no. Yeah, that's totally fine. Uh, so I actually I, want to talk about podcasts in a second, but okay, okay. Uh, I butcher people's names on the regular. In fact, I'm You're pretty sure I've done it already. So I am that guy, and I don't mean to earnestly it, it, it hurts me when i do it but sometimes it just mouth does not work yeah. right yeah i feel i feel bad saying that i haven't listened because i usually i used to listen to every show that i went on but now i have just distinctly made podcasts and no sports space in my life so i only listen to non-sports podcasts it's my chance to escape no that's that's totally fair uh the majority uh, the majority of my uh podcast Podcasts anymore well not podcasts i listen to books like on airplanes uh mm-hmm. it, it's fantasy or it's uh whatever yeah. a friend has you know it's some type of fiction uh, I, I not relating not relating to anything in life right i get why people you talk about you talk about fantasy or fiction you get you talk i get why people only read nonfiction, but my goodness a good fiction book is so fun 
It's, it's like one of the joys of life is to be locked into a fiction book. Uh, agreed. Uh, and it doesn't matter like whatever your specific brand is. Uh, it's just, it's an escapism. And I think that mentally uh, it's so healthy to have that. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, one, uh, I generally can correlate my personal happiness to how much fiction I've been reading lately. But like my ability to read books throughout my day is very important to my mental health. So uh, that, that, that tracks. I, yeah. I, I would understand that. Here's another thought. <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually a thought I had today. This is me debuting a personal life take. I do you listen to the daily. No. Oh, interesting. Uh, but you know, you're familiar with who Michael Barbaro is. No. Oh, then never mind. You don't get the debut. You don't get the debut take then. Um, so back to depth. Back to depth of the national team. I don't know. Maybe I'm avoiding because I think you asked a question that probably has an answer and I don't I don't know it. So I'm just not so, going to. Yeah. So I, I mean. Is, is depth correlated to national team success? Basically, if you were to, if you were to create a two by two of national team quality to their number of players over a threshold, not. Keeping in mind, quality is is subjective, right? Yeah. So here's a, a data point, which is a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe cold water on us. I looked up the other day, and again, I understand that any measuring, to your point, measuring quality or player level is really hard. But just to look at it over a certain threshold, and maybe it's an arbitrary threshold, but uh, the number of players each nationality has over, we'll generally call it Champions League level, you know, like the middle of England, the top teams in Croatia and stuff like that. Uh, U.S. has roughly the 30th most players at that level right now, worldwide. I mean, that tracks. Yeah, I mean, we have basically the same as Norway. I'm looking at Norway, Sweden, Senegal, Japan, Ivory Coast, Morocco, Czech, you know, Czech Republic has twice as many as us. Nigeria has twice as many. So, you know, of course, I'm excited, as excited as anybody else. But then I do step back and I look at that number and it's like, okay, there's still a little bit of ways to go. Keeping in mind that earlier you did talk about the variance in a lot of leagues and talent, right? Keeping in mind that that applies to a whole host of leagues and, and where you draw that line. Yeah. Why, why do you bring that up now, though? I, I mean, you, you brought it up with, the champ, with, with uh, Champions League and, and, and stuff. So I, I don't know. It just it seemed like, okay, if that's where you want to draw your line, cool. But other people could probably redraw it and in a different way, right? Uh, it's subjective. You could probably redraw it and. Well, and say, yeah, but if that, I guess not specific, that it, not specific to the U S but specific to other countries and other countries look more favorable and other countries less favorable, right? There's embedded factors in there that for like, look at England and look how hard it is for them to get players that aren't on a national team, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, into that country. So, I mean, there, there's, there's just, there's certain factors that that go into that, right? Uh, I mean, you you look at some of the players in the past uh, from an MLS perspective that couldn't make a transfer because they didn't have association with a national team, right? Mm-hmm. So, sure. I, and that's just that's just from a US MLS perspective. I look, at, I think about a lot of you mentioned uh, Senegal, like that is one thing that kind of pops into my mind uh, in, in how. Yeah, I, this is a, such a rabbit trail. I apologize. No, it's so, fair. It's fair. but it, it, there's just a lot of different aspects that you could go down, and you can say, well, this influences why uh, these these national teams have more players here or at that level, 
right? There, there's just there's different ways that you can cut and you can draw that lines. Right. Having think- a full team, basically having, having been in a country like Croatia will be high because Dinamo Zagreb is above the level Slavia Prague. So that's why I, I mostly look at countries who are, cannot do not have champions league or Europa league teams is really the advantage. That's why it's better to compare it to, but anyway, this is a, this is a rabbit hole. Yeah, it, it is. But I mean, when we were talking about uh, player depth, I mean, to a degree it is important, right? Um, I just don't, you're probably right. I don't know. I just, I, I think there's an answer. We can make a pretty simple two by two of that. Uh, but well, the other side of it is also you have all these players that at that level that are going to be putting minutes, extra minutes on their bodies. Uh, you know, you, you could point to Christian Polsic as being one of them who's putting, you know, when he's healthy is putting a lot of those minutes on it, on his body, uh, that maybe, you know, another player, a similar player, uh, that plays for a, a team that's not in the champions league, that isn't putting those minutes on his body. That isn't, uh, that isn't having to go through all that travel. Right. Uh, probably in a better position, probably in a healthier position in their life. Yeah. It feels, yes. I think depth, the big thing to point out here, I think is that depth matters because it's more rolls of the dice. Uh, yes, agreed. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's kind of where uh, I was kind of going because you're going to have those fifth, sixth, seventh string players that uh, that are just of a, and I hate saying better quality, but uh, they're, maybe they're at a higher level. They're exposed to a higher level, uh, or at least that's when you think about teams that are up there, right? When you're starting talking about teams that are sitting in the top five in the world right their fifth sixth string t- uh depth players are often exposed to a higher quality of, of play in life um that's yeah. just that's just reality yeah. right well i think the, i think the way that i would the way i would think about it and i'll use dax because i think dax is just such an important great american player but i'm not sure that what we have now are that many players who are actually better than dax we just have more dax mccarty's and what that does is like one out of the eight turns from Dax McCarty into, you know, Tyler Adams, right? So I actually, one thing I think it's important here is that the the raising the baseline is only marginally important. It's getting a certain number of people over the threshold of like or whatever threshold exists that could then potentially turn into Tyler Adams. So that's why the depth matters to me. Not that you care that the that the median is higher on, that your seventh best player is now better than he used to be. It's that you now have five players in that role and one might turn into your, the level of the fourth best. Does that, did I, did that make sense, that explanation? No, that was that, no, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I will say uh, you, you had me at uh, – there is eight Dax McCartys out there. I, I don't – first of all, I, with all due respect, I don't believe you. I don't, yeah, um, I agree. You get the point, though. I think it's a made-up number. You get, you, get, you, get, you get what I mean now. It's, it is, but it was distracting, man. It's distracting. Dax McCarty is lovable in every single way. I totally agree. Great American soccer icon. That that should be a personality test. Like, am I going to get along with this person? What do you think of Dax McCarty? I know. It's a really good one. Yeah. It's just we, you know, there's a a lot of conversation. And I used to talk to people. I talk to people about this all the time. But, you know, like the the, the success with the U-20 national teams. You know, are the U-20 national teams. There was a suggestion that the U-20 national teams were better than they used to be, which is just Basically not true. You know, we had two or three straight start, straight cycles when the team taking out the luck of who you get in the group and whether four points gets you through or not were probably just as good, if not better. The difference is that those teams were nine players and now they're 14 players. 
and any one of those five could then turn into could then turn into you know Michael Tyler Bradley. Adams. Yeah, yeah. So, and that just feels like an important distinction as we think about it. Yeah, I know it makes a lot of sense. Be- <laughs> I mean, you're talking to a guy that plays D and D, right? Like, the more roles is is good, right? Like <laughs> intrinsically, that's what you want to create, right? You you look about look at it from a from an exchange and from a, an economical standpoint, right? That's what you want to create. So, yep. All right, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, thank you so much for for coming on. Thank you for taking time after you <laughs> got your booster. Um, I really hope that we can have you on again soon. This was this was so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoyed it as well. And I, I've said this to each of you individually, but uh, I think ASA is amazing. I think what you do is important. Uh, you guys get my Patreon donation every month. You have for a couple of years now. So uh, thank you for what you do. All right. Coming up next, I have a conversation with TSS Tactical Wizard and center back passing connoisseur, Joe Lowry. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Harrison Crow, joined now with ASA friend, one of the many voices of the Total Soccer Show and co-host of MLS Assist. You can read his work on The Athletic, the center back sending line-breaking passes, connoisseur, Joseph Joe Lowry. Thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Harrison. That was quite the intro. I'm I'm here for it. It was very nice, and uh, it had the word center and the word back in it, back to back, which you know I'm always here for. You, I, I know you. Those line breaking passes, man. That's that's that seems to be your thing, right? That that's that's, <laughs> your, that's your thing. Line breaking passes from center backs, dribbling from center backs. I'm just here to watch. I think I think the day that soccer gets rid of the six as a position in central midfield and just gives all of that distributive work to the center backs, that's the day I stop watching because everything that I've ever wanted will have been achieved. So you're a big sweeper guy. Oh, yeah, big sweeper guy. That's I mean, well, you're a new, 90s kid, right? New, so I mean, new Twitter bio, new Twitter bio right there, Harrison. Big sweeper guy. <laughs> So, all right. So I didn't, I I didn't have this in the show notes. I'm going to spring this on you a little bit of an icebreaker today. It, it seems like we're getting a second trilogy of Spider-Man. What do you think? Are you, are you, are are you for it? Are you against it? There seems to be a really, a big split of people that are like, I I don't care. Plus are people (laughs) sick of this? Aren't people done with this? And then you have, uh, people like me that are like, I will, I, I will continue to give you my money. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I am, I'm excited. I enjoyed the first two Tom Holland Spider-Man movies uh, quite a bit, and I think the third one's going to be good. I'm excited about it. So yeah, you, you and me are in the same camp on that one. Okay, all right, yeah. I, ju- I, I get that there's a little bit of zero, superhero fatigue to, uh, to a degree. You know, they, there's, you gotta, uh, you gotta kind of evolve the the format a little bit i think you have to kind of evolve how you do movies to a certain extent uh and, and just kind of bring it bring them up a little bit upscale i guess yeah but yeah. uh all right uh well thank you very much for joining me i have to tell you i'm completely biased because i've known you for a few years uh <laughs> but you are one of my favorite tactical guys uh, i love that you have so many different ways to consume uh, the content that you create between MLS Assist, the TSS show, which like, are you guys doing like every day? Like, what what is what is this? What is this that like? I hear your voice like almost every day of the week now. 
Yeah, it's it's usually Monday through Thursday. I'm usually on at least three of those shows, Monday to Thursday, sometimes four. And then uh, Paul Tenorio and Sam Stagegold do Allocation Disorder on Friday. And I, I edit that. So sometimes you'll hear them drop, like, Joe edit this, Joe edit that. And, and sometimes I'll <laughs> do what they say, and other times I let it ride because I think it's funny. But yes, um, don't, <laughs> don't, uh, I hope folks don't get too sick of hearing my voice because there there's a lot of it out there, I think, at this point. <laughs> Lots and lots of Joe and tactical goodness. Uh, so help me out. I have you on here to talk tactics. Uh, one of my my opening questions, my perception with post-analysis tactics is your job is to identify patterns and behavior within space. Is that how you approach dissecting a game? Or is there, a, is there another approach that you go with? No, I, I think that's I think that's a great way to phrase that. I I really like that. I might I might steal that. I'm just adding to the Twitter bio at this point. It's quite a little <laughs> long for the bio, but it might it might just have to go filed in my notes app. It's this idea of picking out themes, right? It's it's like analyzing a, a lot of different things in life. Um, soccer is complicated because there's a lot going on, right? It, it's there's so many different moving pieces and parts, and that's why I love this game. And I think that's why a lot of folks love this game. But when you're watching a game for tactics, we're, we're recording early in the week. And so I, I'm just fresh off of the weekend. And, and for the weekend review show that we do on TSS, we watched Manchester City's win over West Ham. And in that game, I'm thinking about, OK, we've seen Manchester City play a thousand times now, right? We know how they play under Pep. We have the general idea and philosophy down. We've heard it too many times at this point. What are they doing in this game that's helping them defend, uh, helping them attack, excuse me, against a, a relatively compact West Ham defense. What patterns are they exhibiting? Because those things often lead to some of the more exciting moments in a game, or at least I think they lead to some of the most interesting moments in the game. So watching for patterns, watching for what spaces are available and when they're available, those things are, are, are typically things that I look for when I'm watching a game for tactics. Well, and those things change, right? They're, they change from day, from game to game, yeah. even if you know, you know, you know how Man City is going to approach a game, but you don't know necessarily what spaces they want to occupy within that stretch of game. Because like you said, the defense construction, how they're going to defend against those spaces and against uh, maybe uh, those patterns and buildups is going to be different, correct? Right. It, it's like it's like you're driving to someone's house. There's so many different ways that you can get there. You know what the goal is, right? You know how Pep Guardiola is going to try and drive his car. There's going to be rondos. There's going to be triangles somehow along the road. But it's it's a matter of which path is being taken with the same principles in place for actually driving that car. Are you going to go make three left turns? Are you going to go through a roundabout? I mean, there's so many different ways to go about doing that. And like you're saying, Harrison, it changes based off the situation. Yeah. Sometimes 405 isn't the best way to go. Sometimes you want to go up north on five and, and just actively commit bad decisions. Like, I get it. I, I get it. Uh, man, traffic has me. I, I, I've been listening to Christmas music and my wife made a comment the other day about uh, there's the Perry Como. There's no place like Christmas or there's no like no place like home for the holidays. Yeah. And there's the the throwaway line. Uh, this traffic is delightful. And just like the most like that really like it's not that it's an older song. It's just that's how you know how out of touch and outdated yep. that, yeah. that reference is. <laughs> so. Thank you for distracting me with your traffic analysis. Yeah, I do of course, appreciate of it. Of course. I feel like I've unearthed uh, some demons there for you. I, I'm sorry about that. Well, I mean, it's it's the greater Pacific Northwest. Anybody in the Seattle area is going to 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 automatically like uh, relate. And I'm sure, you know, there's other stretches of, of North America, which and probably Europe, if anybody's listening out there, that they can just absolutely relate with with the struggles of Look, it's just not worth driving uh, <laughs> forty minutes to go five miles. It's it's just not. Yeah. So, uh, 
So Coach Greg Berhalter, both in press conferences and in his podcast, has talked about these patterns or phases of play. Before we launch like headlong into patterns and phases, uh, can you help maybe expand and define these as part of our conversation? Sure. So phases, I think, is is where we should start here because it's a little bit more of an umbrella term. And a lot of times patterns go within phases. So phases, traditionally, there's there's these four open play phases in a soccer game. So you've got possession. And then after you lose the ball in possession, you transition to defense. And a lot of times that involves counterpressing. It could just involve tracking back basketball style, but you don't really see that a whole lot in soccer these days. So you got possession and then transition defense. And then once you've settled back into defense, that's just your straight up defending phase. So that's three possession, defensive transition, defending, and then counterattacking, right? Transition attacking after you win the ball back, you want to go quickly. That's Jesse Marsh's whole thing. And that's, I mean, that's a lot of, of coaches whole thing. And there's a lot of statistical value for that. A lot of goals are scored in those quick moments after the ball is won. Those are generally thought of as the main four open play phases. Then you have attacking and defensive set pieces, which I know Greg Berhalter also talks about and has talked about in that podcast with Bobby Warshaw. Patterns pop up within those phases. And most often, I think about patterns. Maybe this is a a small-minded way to look at it, but I think about patterns in possession, right? Because that's when you can really see what is this team's idea when they have the ball? How are they trying to score goals? You can also see that in like attacking transition and you can see patterns just using the definition of the word pattern, something happening repeatedly and maybe even intentionally. You can see that in, in a high press or in a low block and see specific movements or in counter pressing. How are they doing that? You can see it in all phases, but I think it's a lot of times it's easiest to see it in possession. That could be I know Beralter talks about uh, his his fullbacks overlapping and the wingers running in behind and then the weak side winger arriving in the penalty box, right? He talks about that stuff a lot as his ideal of how the possession will unfold, the patterns he wants to see. So hopefully that is a baseline for phases, those, those four open play phases, you got set pieces too, and then patterns which fit within those phases of play. So kind of a two-part question, right? Is there event data? And, and that's kind of where we're stuck at within the public sphere, right? right. We, within this, uh, within the, where, where we're at right now, we're not lucky enough to have access to some of the stuff uh, behind, the, behind closed doors that a lot of clubs have. But are there events that you specifically look at that help you cut up um, these phases and then patterns? Yeah. So if you're trying to split a game up into into phases or into patterns, you want to look for, I tend to look for things that are statistically significant for a game or just significant to the outcome of a game, right? I think about in possession, you're looking for passes that lead to a shot. It's really simple, right? And, and there's a lot of other important context that goes into that, right? We can't just be looking at expected goals to decide, you know, what team was good, what team was bad. There's other factors here. But looking at, at key passes and looking at where they're coming from and then looking at the, the relative quality of those shots, those can give you an idea of, of what patterns were being used. And even zooming out a little bit, I guess you can get an idea of the phases of play from those things at a pretty basic level. So you could look for something like a key pass. You could look for you, you can get a gauge of a team's approach in a game by looking at event data to try and gauge, okay, where are they passing the ball? What part of the field are these things happening? Where are they regularly registering defensive pressures? Are they really deep in their own half? That might signify that they're they're just not all that interested in having possession and really asserting themselves in that game in the way that we often think about asserting ourselves a game with possession and in field position. Or are those pressures higher up the field? So that that kind of event data can be useful. Like you're saying, though, there, Harrison, there's a lot more room for this kind of stuff and getting an idea of where players are and how they're moving and what they're seeing 
those things will help us build out maybe a better idea with data to, to get a tactical understanding as well. The other side of the coin, though, is that sometimes data can be a little bit of a false flag, right? Do you have that when you're going through games and you, you try to identify patterns and you start seeing event data and you're like, this does not explain anything <laughs> that I'm looking at right now? Yeah, th- that stuff can happen, I think, about with expected goals, right? If if someone – this this happened in the MLS playoff games over the weekend, right? Sporting Kansas City uh, have a penalty in that game against Real Salt Lake. And after the game, the XG looks even, um, but that's because in a lot of places that's included and you have to filter out, okay, non-penalty expected goals. And then it looks much more skewed. There are those situations where a lot of what you're seeing on the field and in what event data captures, which is really just what you're seeing on the field with the ball, if you're watching for the ball, there are things that can be misleading in that way. Certain shots can be a little bit misleading. There's also this contextual factor too, right? If a team, it's about game states in, in certain situations. So if, if your team's up three nothing, the game's going to look different. And maybe there's a conversation about how you weigh the last thirty minutes of a game when you're up three nothing. How you weigh that against the first sixty minutes when you were actually pushing for goals. The approach is going to be different. The data is going to look different. And, and I think if you're not careful in how you think about some of these things, you could end up with um, some mis- misconceptions about what actually happened. Well, yeah, I'm 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 very much team even game state, uh, open play shots only. Like I I I, <clears throat> I, I know you've seen some of the the twitter conversations i've had and i'm like oh yeah uh i guess he did have much higher xg i just stripped it from <laughs> from my from my data set because it didn't happen from open play so right. I, I didn't i didn't count it that doesn't count to me <laughs> which is unfair it's just totally unfair but at the same time uh when you're looking at a single game right uh expected goals it has a tendency to to perhaps skew and as you said if you don't take into context how it was created when it was created and uh some of the conditions upon how you know how it was being created with the defense did it happen on a quick turnover did it happen uh off a set piece did it happen you know as part of a penalty um these things matter Right. Yeah. Yeah. Those those things are all really important. And another one that I guess maybe it's hot button topic. Maybe it's not this idea of duels. Right. That's another event data thing. And and I think there's some there's some value in understanding how how busy teams are, how much they're moving defensively, how engaged they are against the ball. You know, Weston McKinney had you know 20 duels in a game or whatever. There's there's some value in understanding that. But at the same time, there's just a lot of subjectivity there too. There's, it's hard to understand what that actually means. If I'm not mistaken, it's collected differently. And, and that's a hard one to actually contextualize and, ha- and be confident in the fact that, okay, this is exactly, I know what exactly what this means. We're not just at that point right now. And so that can be another misleading thing that if, if you're using it within certain arguments, maybe it has value. And, and I've definitely looked at that as a reference point before, but that's another one that can be sort of a false flag, I think is how you phrased it. No, I think I think that's perfect because number one, uh, as far as like when you have an optic person collecting that, that really is up to them to determine, right? right? Uh, so that that's something you have to be cognizant of. It's one of the reasons why we filtered out big chances within our expected goals, right? This has been a, something that within expected goals has been hotly debated for almost a decade, right? Whether or not you include big chances as part of your expected goal calculator, right? Because someone has to be there that says, okay that's a big chance <laughs> and and you know fair enough it, it 
it certainly can help uh, certain situations where the expected goals uh, it definitely doesn't weight that opportunity correctly. But each person's definition of a big chance could you know, sway pretty rapidly. And, and to that extent, I got an example for you with the challenges. Uh, watching the USL Championship uh, last night, uh, yeah. you had Forrest Lasso, who I, 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 I want to just say is I, I'm a huge champion of. I, I think he's an MLS caliber defensive player. I I, I threw out the idea that in another uh, in another world in another multiverse, uh, he's playing uh, starting center back in the playoffs for Nashville. Yeah, but uh, he made a challenge that was rather easy and just basically gave it back to OC and they just, he was out of position at that point in time, right? It's made at midfield. He made the challenge at midfield really. And it was really a one-sided challenge. Like the, the four, the attacking forward had no, no business really trying to win. It just kind of gave him a little bit of a, a little bit of a shove easily won, put back into the uh, attack and instantly they countered and had a, had a goal out of it. Because Forrest Lasso is completely out of position, uh, unfortunately, can't get back on defense. Hate that my example is 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 anti Forrest Lasso. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it feels super bad, but uh, it, it plays into that specific case, right? Like uh, in this case, it wasn't that he won a challenge; it's that he gave the ball away really easily, and already everybody's pressing high uh, tr- for that offside line and. There's all that space behind him, and you have three center backs that really were not. Uh, they're they're just not very fast. They're just not very mobile. Um, so th- that's kind of the downside of it, right? And it 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 kind of exposes the other side, how the other half lives. Yeah, I, I think that's a really really good example, Harrison, because in in the data, if the opta person is looking at it and saying, "Oh, all right, that's that's a dual," right? we'll, we'll we'll categorize it as such. Then you look through the stats later and you say, oh, that's a dual one for Forrest Lasso. Like, that's that's great. But there's no there's no context around that. There's no understanding that, okay, maybe that wasn't the right situation or, or maybe it should have been a situation where he's dropping off and providing cover to protect the goal, right? So there's there's just so much information that we don't have and we don't have an ability to manipulate and to, to really explore right now. Some folks, some folks do. But by and large, you, there are some things you have to be careful about when you're looking at event data. Lots of helpful stuff in there, of course. But just like you you got to think critically when you're watching a game, if that's how you want to watch a game, then you should probably think critically when you're looking at some of the numbers too. Agreed, agreed. So uh, within specific phases of play, there are going to be roles. You know, each each player, of course, has a position, but those those specific positions, of course, have roles within them. How do you judge a player's performance when you compare it uh, at the national team level and then also within the league that they play? So I, I think you want to start with having as good of an understanding as you can of what that player's role is, right? You're, you're mentioning there there's roles within there's roles within different phases and different patterns, right? And I think a good simple example of that is back at the beginning of Baralther's tenure, You've got this number six that's supposed to spray diagonals around, and it was Michael Bradley, and it was Will Trapp, and it was Jackson Ewell all the way back until earlier this year. And now it seems like Baralther's fully moved away from that idea and changed the role of that player. Still similar in a positional sense, at least largely, um, but they have a different job. And so, I mean, it's helpful to understand, okay, what was the original assignment? What was that 
instruction and then what, how are they executing within that instruction? And it gets complicated because they're not the only factor at play here, right? When you've got a hitter hitting in baseball, there's limited factors because he is, he is really the, he or, he or she is really the, the person involved at that point. But in soccer, there's a lot of other moving pieces and parts there. But I do think it's helpful to have an idea of what their original instruction is. And then from an internal perspective, it's this idea of, well, I guess partly here it's an idea of KPIs, right? Key performance indicators. Baralter and and Jesse Marsh and a lot of coaches talk about with their wingers, how many runs are we making in behind per game? And for Jesse Marsh, it's some really high number because that's a huge part of what he wants to do is stretch the back line, play vertically. And we can sort of intuit some of those things with how, how and what we know about these coaches and their styles of play and the team's desire, how they want to get to their destination through LA or Seattle traffic, right? We, we know certain things about these teams. So I think using that information and then watching critically to understand, okay, what is Tyler Adams' role in this moment? How is he covering space? His job, clearly in this counterpressing situation, is to shield the back line. Did he do that or not? We can make sort of we can make some value judgments here. And then with, with league play, I think it's a similar idea. There's challenges when it comes to saying that there should be form factored into national team call-ups, and we've seen that sort of disproven recently with Tim Weah, among other players in the past. So there, there is some similarities in how you want that analysis to take place, but I don't know how much of a crossover there really is between league form and, and national team play. Okay. But when you, that so much, you said so much that I just, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll pluck a player specifically, right? Yunus Musa, who's playing a wide midfielder for Valencia, right. or at least he has been. Yeah. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't watch a lot of Valencia. It's okay. I, it's okay. You're not I apologize. A like yeah. I, <laughs> There is somebody that's really offended by what you said. You're right. I'm so sorry. I'm not, I'm not sorry. <laughs> but he plays a central midfielder for the United States. I I feel it's an underserved conversation how some of the positions stay the same, but the facilitation and the role itself changes. Hmm. So Yunus Musa, in a lot of ways, does exactly what he does for Valencia. He just kind of does it more in the center of the pitch rather than out wide, or at least that's kind of how I feel, right? You know, his job is maybe to to get the ball and just run at the back line. Now, hit the back line a lot of times is more central in a lot of cases, right? He's carrying the ball up the midfield. Um, is that apt, or is there another another example that you feel fits better? No, I think that's a great example, Harrison. He does. He largely does. He does a lot of the same things. He doesn't do everything the same. Yunus Musa from from club and country because the framework around him is different. It's not an identical role. Valencia under uh, Bordelas don't don't really like the ball a whole lot, and that kind of applied under Javi Gracia as well last year when Musa was was first breaking into that team. So there, there's differences in that he doesn't get the same number of opportunities, and, and maybe some of the requirements are different. But to get to your example of his work on the ball. That doesn't change. It doesn't magically change. Like you're saying, Harrison, you're, you're, I think you're spot on there. It doesn't magically change from club to country. Baralter sees that skill when he's first looking at, at Yunus Musa with Valencia and then maybe watching some youth footage. He sees that skill and says, well, well how can we apply that, right? How can we use that and leverage what Musa is really, really good at and, and help make our team really, really good at that thing and help make our team by association really, really good at other things too, so there is this, this similarity. Jordan Morris may be another example. 
he plays different roles for Seattle sometimes than he does with the national team or than he has with the national team in the past. But the idea is is the same. Berhalter wants to use his skill set to run in behind the back line, to create opportunities to, to break into that space and to use him crashing the box on the weak side, right? He wants to do those things and, and Morris might be doing that or he might be doing that in one area of the field or another area of the field for Seattle. That that can change. But his assignment and his skill set really won't change a whole lot. There'll be some different context around it and some different ideas because Brian Schmetzer and Berhalter approach soccer differently. But because a player does one thing with their club doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do a whole different thing with the national team. A lot of times, I think there's there's a good bit of crossover in those cases. The other side of the coin is there's there's some guys who just do completely different yeah, things, right? Uh, I, I, I'm just going to pluck this out of my hat. I think Paul Areola plays a different role that makes him more successful with the national team than he does with DC United. Uh, and, and I think that... It, Part of that, uh, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but some of the things that I've been thinking about lately um, is just he seems a little bit have have a little bit more freedom with the U.S. men's national team to create problems. Uh, and I feel like maybe with D.C. United, it's a less so he has a little bit more of a structured role with that team. I, I think that's part of it. And also, I think there's there's a difference there with his his offensive responsibilities with DC than there is with the U.S. men's national team. I think because he's a part of that right side for Hernan Lozada with Julian Gressel and with uh, with Andy Nahar, there's this expectation that that side will create a lot or at least will lead to opportunities for DC United to create if we step back a layer. Um, and so Areola had some offensive responsibility, and I guess he has that to an extent with the men's national team. But for the U.S., I think if you're relying on Paul Areola to be one of the top three creators on your team, you're going to have some problems, right? So so there is that difference. At the same time, though, you look a little bit deeper and you think, well, Ariel is still going to be doing the same thing maybe in the defensive phases where he's going to pressure, he's going to be aggressive. And, and off the ball, he might even do a lot of the same things. He's going to be running. He just might have more off-ball looks with the national team than he does with DC because he's not getting on the ball as much with the national team because he doesn't need to. So similar in a lot of ways and different in other ways. And I think in in some senses, that's, kind of the same for Musa and kind of the same for Morris and, and all the other examples too. So kind of translating some of these phases and some of these roles uh, and even patterns, how have you seen the consistency of these roles, these patterns, these uh, phases between games with the U.S. men's national team over the last six months? It's been It's been pretty inconsistent. To be totally honest with you, Harrison, you can see you can see the building blocks. Let me back up. You can see the building blocks. I think back to the game against Panama, that one nothing loss. Anibal Godoy scores a, a header on a corner kick. Um, it's that horrible, horrible game where Brawler essentially is asked about you know how do you how do you want to play in the post game press conference, and that's when he goes through the whole we want to push our fullbacks wide, we want to have the weak side winger crash, and he does this twenty second summary of of his ideal offensive phase slash pattern and how he wants to put the ball in the back of the net. You think back to that game, and there was consistency in that you can sort of see the intent. You can see the six drop deep and try to create and build through the, the Panama's front two, along with the center backs and, and the goalkeeper, right? You can see that intent. You can see Musa getting on the ball in central midfield and trying to drive it forward. You can see George Bello overlapping on the left side and Shaq Moore on the right side. 
but there were just a lot of problems with the execution. Peralta talks specifically about the fullbacks and their their awareness and their movement and their work in possession. And there was issues defensively too with the press, the wingers pinching in and having that step be there. That's definitely a pattern that the U.S. uses in their defensive phase. When they high press, they'll pinch the wingers inside to pressure the opposition center back. So you can see those things happening, but there's so many breakdowns in that. So the, the framework has been built and, and it's worked a lot better in, say, a home game against Costa Rica, home game against Jamaica, more favorable conditions when, when you really do have a lot of the first choice guys out on the field. But there have been breakdowns in that consistency and some inconsistencies popping up, if not in framework, then certainly in execution. So you said a lot of really good things and I don't mean to move, keep moving on, but no, I, I'm going kind to of, So ultimately, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is it just you, you're starting to see them build, to, as you said, build towards something? You feel like something is is coming about that will be more of a, a more consistent product, in product, that you'll see those KPIs as you talked about, or KPIs as you talked about uh, previously. Are, do you see those kind of embedded within this approach? You can. You can see some of that. I see, I see some of that. We've seen progress from this team over the last six months, I'd, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have hesitations. I, I think it's so easy to think, okay, the Mexico game went really well. Dos Acero, that was so much fun, and it was so much fun. But I still have a little bit of that bad taste in my mouth from Panama. I still have a little bit of that bad taste in my mouth from the, the draw with Canada, where the U.S. struggled mightily to break down that low block. We haven't seen the U.S. do a lot of breaking down a really good low block in under Baralter. And, and I have concerns that the U.S. makes it to a World Cup. A lot of teams roll out there with a 4-4-2 Sweden style and, and try to absorb. And I don't know how the U.S. is going to actually thrive in those moments and break through. So there, there has been, and, and I have concerns about this team in a lot of ways, but we have seen progress. I believe we have seen some tactical progress and the group is coming together. And even just having the level of talent that the U.S. does right now goes a long way, man. Players are... Players are the most important thing, and I lose sight of that a lot because I love the tactical bird's eye view side of things. I, 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 I they're not chess pieces, and I have to remember that they're they're key parts, and they have these individual actions, and they get to decide what happens on the field. The coach really doesn't. There's work done by the coach to put them in positions to succeed, but it, it's there's a certain point where you have to let go and, and take the training wheels off, and the players have to do the rest. The players are the most important thing, and so the single most encouraging thing for me about this team isn't necessarily the the super defined tactical approach, even though I like seeing that stuff develop. It's the fact that the players are better now than they probably ever have been. And it looks like that's going to continue to be the case over the next X number of years, really. So when you're looking at it, how much can you look at a game and say, this is the player's fault, this is the coach's fault, and this is just the other team just being better and being able to break through the tactics. Oh, man. A million-dollar question, Harrison. I, right, that, right, I mean, right, that's... right. Like, this is why you get paid the big bucks. I'm asking for your secret <laughs> sauce here. If you can oh, DM me on the sidelines, right? Like, <laughs> This is something that, that Taylor and I have talked about a lot on TSS after – bad national team games and even after after good games right where does the credit go where does the blame go right and it's hard it's hard to determine that especially without being on the inside you don't know maybe Greg. i don't think this is true i don't think this is true at all but maybe greg Baralter didn't work at all on defensive set pieces that week and then panama score a set piece goal and you think well then it'd be a lot easier to understand where the blame lies well and especially if they have three games three days right 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 i mean there's just there's so many factors here and that's why it can almost be like 
you can almost feel paralyzed by just how much context you need to really feel confident about something. And maybe I, I'm the only one who feels that sometimes. But I do think I do think it's true that you can look at a team and look at their personnel and see, okay, what is the talent you have? And then take a step back and think from a coaching perspective, what is a logical and potentially effective way to set that talent up and allow them to succeed? Because at the end of the day, a coach's job, at least in terms of getting his players out on the field, getting her players out on the field, is to put them in positions to succeed. The players ultimately have to do that and take that step to succeed. But if you're putting Paul Ariola in a situation, not to be harsh to Paul Ariola, where he has to be this playmaking number 10, threading through balls and behind, and that's the one thing you're expecting from him, you're not setting him up to succeed. And so to an extent, you can see with the national team, okay, in the past, there have been situations where I don't think Baralta has fully set his team up to succeed. And it's possible that he was playing the long game and saying, yeah, I'm sacrificing this pawn in this moment and I'm sacrificing Jackson Ewell here. That's not a good example. I just don't think Jackson Ewell quite had it with the national team. But I'm sacrificing this short-term game for something longer. So we still don't really know what the deal is there. But you can look at a team and say, is the coach setting them up to succeed or not? And if, if that's not the case, then you have to think about, well, how how much blame do we assign to the coach? Because it feels like there should be blame. If, if you watch an action and say, this is just a bad decision. This is something that you can clearly see a better option and you're, you're pretty confident, even without being inside that player's head, that, that there was a mistake in the decision-making process, then there's blame that can go to players. There's sloppy touches that can happen. There's those things that I think it's, it's fair to blame players. If you're going to praise players, there has to be some of that other side done as well when you're trying to analyze something. So I, I, I generally believe that it's a split between those things, and there's a lot of factors here, and you can't fully blame a coach or fully blame players. But depending on the situation and depending on what you see in that situation, I do think the blame can go more to one side than the other. Okay, so we're sitting on the outside looking in. You mentioned a name, Jackson Ewell. Uh, I'm not going to let this go. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no. Sorry, friend. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a role where his talents can be utilized at the national team level? in the current form of the patterns and the phases that you see? I don't think so. I think we've been there, done that at this point, right? Jackson Ewell's thing, Harrison, in my mind, is his distribution, right? It's those it's those pinging balls that do numbers on Twitter, right? And that his dad retweets. It's stuff like that, <laughs> which are beautiful to watch. And I love watching Jackson Ewell play because he pulls out some of those absolute zingers and it's beautiful. But he was able to to be in that role and he was in that distributing number six role for the national team. And we, uh, it, for me, it really came to a, a, a peak this summer in Nations League, I think it was, where he's having chances to do that. And, and he's playing against Honduras in a semifinal in that role where he's getting touches and chances to break down a block. And he's not playing the passes that you look and see, okay, this is what you want that type of six to play. Maybe Tyler Adams can get away without playing those passes because you know for a fact that he brings value in other phases where Jackson Ewell doesn't have the athleticism to cover and, and to justify himself not making those passes. So he had, a, he had a chance in my mind to do that job, and it didn't get done. He had a chance to pass into break lines in a way that would help the U.S. win games and break blocks and create chances. But those things didn't happen. It didn't come together. So is the door always closed on Jackson Ewell or on any player? No, of course not. And Peralta would say that exact same thing. But for now, based off of what we've seen from him in the national team picture, it seems to me like he can't do the one job that seems like it would have been suited for him. Now the job has changed a little bit, or at least the person in that job has changed temporarily. Okay, we can kind of see and we can kind of roughly uh, 
from the data set that we have, we can kind of measure and say, okay, this is roughly what the U.S. Men's National Team 6 does. There's not a lot of options behind Tyler Adams to do (laughs) what that 6 does. Is there a way that we can take some of those attributes and say, okay, I know you're not as good at A, B, or C, and start to manipulate certain roles within those within those uh, within those patterns within those phases, so that as you're in the counter, uh, you're looking for your six to do X instead of Y. So, are you talking about assigning roles to players in individual phases? Or are you talking about valuing certain actions to figure out if it's worth playing? Player A, who's a really good passer but can't defend, versus player B, who's a really good defender but maybe not so good. Well, on the so ball. so the pattern happens within the phase, right? Right. So you'd assign that role within the pattern. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, so that role would do X or Y or would be yeah. responsible for facilitating a certain thing, which Tyler Adams does right now, right? Within the buildup, within within most of the time, let's let's be honest, right? Most of the time that you're transitioning, he's at the forefront of that transition, right? right? So obviously Jackson Yule not gonna do that. But is there a way that we can manipulate our team to where, okay, uh, Jackson Yule or whoever, and I'm just using Jackson Yule in this case because you brought him up and you used a name and I did not. So now you're the villain and not me. <laughs> so uh, is there a way that we can manipulate whoever is use, utilizing that role to where that they take on another role and you kind of do this exchange? How does that work within the construct of uh, readapting tactics from a situation to where you don't have, you can't go on the transfer market and go, well, I'm going to replace Tyler Adams in this way. Right. right. I mean, a lot of this, it sounds like has to do with trying to give those detailed instructions and trying to script how certain parts of the game go. Not, Not so that you're being this overbearing tactical mind, but so that you're putting your team in the best position to succeed. Tyler Adams fits in that role of, the transition god where he's doing everything as soon as the team as soon as the possession changes from one team to the other in an attacking sense and most often we see that in a defensive sense i think it's helpful to break down those phases into those different patterns or at least into coaches call it sub phases right i've talked with some coaches who have those four main phases of play that we talked about and then break them down even further depending on the area of the field right if you win the ball back in the defensive phase. So you've been you've been defending and you do that maybe inside your own defensive third. You could have then an action that follows from that or have a desired outcome based off of where you won the ball that would be different than if you win the ball in the final third or in the middle third or if you're transitioning from one third of the field versus another. So you can break this down further. And it's harder to do this at the national team level than it is at the club level, logically, because you just don't have as much time. You don't have the same amount of time. But to get players to fulfill different roles within different phases and within different patterns feels totally plausible to me as someone who has never coached a soccer team in my life. It feels possible, and it feels possible to say to a player like Jackson Ewell, here are your specific jobs within these, within these different phases and within these different patterns. We want you to execute them, and then you have a chance to evaluate those players and see if that actually happened or not. Okay. We've been talking a little bit about phases and patterns. So let's get into a little bit of the data, and we're going to take some mushrooms. We're going to go down to Wonderland. Stay with me. I'm not asking for a right answer, so don't feel obligated to know what the answer is. <laughs> it, but to, to me, it seems like in a single game, uh, which already has really few meaningful events, we've kind of 
we've kind of tiptoed around that, but just being straight and honest, there's few meaningful events from the perspective of the larger whole and, and what we might be able to extract and indicate for the future, right? Well, we can say, hey, in the next five games based off of this, we can expect X, right? So when we break down the various phases of play on a single game at a national team level, how much can stats really help uh, in that tactical approach and review? Uh, especially when you think a player who starts and plays between 70, 90 minutes might have somewhere between 40 and like 100 events. Uh, and then other players that get like 20 minutes might have like four touches. So this is a question of sample size, right? That's that's kind of what this boils down to. What meaningful things can we take out of something that doesn't happen all that often in terms of international soccer? And I don't know. To be very upfront, I'm going to use the cop out that you gave me. I don't know the answer to this question, right? If I did, I, I don't know. I'd be doing cool stuff, I suppose. Um, and I mean, I'm doing, I, I'd like to think I'd be doing some fun stuff now. But um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd be probably doing a different job in, in, in some different circumstances. But what I will say is I think there are things you can take out of watching phases of play, breaking down phases of play, watching patterns to get an idea of how a team plays, right? From a tactical standpoint, when you're trying to look at a game to decide how a game was won or when you're trying to prepare your team for an opposition, right? Maybe you're trying to figure out, okay, what does Mexico do in the course of World Cup qualifying? What have they done over the summer? How do they play? What do we tell our players to prepare them for this game besides just go fight win right i mean you you can take things out of these games even with the smaller sample size on a team-wide level especially i think if you think about if you think about all the different things you could look at about how a team tries to use the ball i keep coming back to that because it's it's a lot of times what i find myself watching even though there's so much else going on we're naturally tied to the ball and, and watching what happens when a team has the ball that's one of the most interesting parts of soccer i think is what they're trying to do in those phases so when a team has the ball there's data that you can pull out that says, you know, where was the widest portion that the ball reached in this possession? How wide does this team attack? How quickly do they attack? And part of that sort of starts to, to stem towards more, uh, more tracking data than event data. But there's still meaningful information that you can pull out of a team's approach. Where are they possessing the ball? Where are they defending? Those things that we mentioned earlier on. Even with a smaller sample size, you can still have some value in those kinds of things. You can still have value. Ideally, this would be over a slightly larger sample size, but in some cases, as an opposition analyst, I guess you take what you can get. In you can, There's still value in learning, okay, how does this team create chances? How do they defend? Looking at set pieces, you can still extract valuable information from a lot of these different things, even with a smaller amount of information really at hand with those few meaningful events that you talked about you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot of information to draw from. But I, I am a firm believer that you can take valuable things out to either really dive into what happened in a game and why it happened, or at least get some sort of idea or a theory on that. And then to prepare your team to, to figure out, okay, what might this other team throw at us? All right. First of all, it's fight and win. Uh, <laughs> just, just want to. Thank you. Wanna... Thanks for the correction. Yeah. Well, they, you know, there's there 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 is certain people that are are anti Sounders fans that would probably <laughs> like that corrected. Uh, so, teams at the international level, let's just face it, right? Uh, as you just kind of alluded to, they have a lot of various challenges from a personal perspective. 
um, both in their own camps and then when preparing for other teams and possible challenges uh, defensively, this could mean that the the formations changes, right? That pushing players into different spaces and unexpected roles. I, I kind of think that this to a degree happened already. Uh, we ca- keep going back to Panama. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like this is kind of a, a situation where that was a little bit of, was it Panama? I think was the, the unexpected uh, formation where uh, Burhalter just kind of came out and said flat out, like, I did not expect them to play in a four, I think it was a four, four, two diamond um, in that game. And, and I think part of it was just, they didn't have uh, a, they didn't have one specific player and the, the name escapes me, but I mean, this is kind of the challenge at the national team layer because um, you, you, miss a player and all of a sudden other roles and other uh other patterns start changing within those phases and how you defend against that uh changes you know it's Christian Pulisic, Pulisic is no longer out wide he's now in the middle of the park right just one example yeah no I, I think I think that's a great example and and I, I shoot I'm also struggling to remember what game that was I don't think it was Panama but it was recent and now it's driving me crazy um as far as that change but you can you can be surprised more in those kinds of situations because you have less information to draw from. It's harder to be as prepared as you can be with a club team for a tactical analyst or someone trying to get their team ready. There's there's challenges, and this is the downside of having that limited sample size. Other things you can draw and, and things you can be confident in, yeah. But are you also going to run into Canada playing a lot lower block than maybe you expected, or? team x doing something that that you didn't predict and then at that point it's well how how tactically intelligent and effective can our players be in this situation that we didn't really prepare them for and how how much can they adapt on the fly what kind of players are we working with here can we still make something out of this when it's it's completely different so yeah there's undeniable challenges there and that's why it's part of why coaching internationally for a soccer team is is so darn difficult it's because there's a lot of things that can come out of left field that maybe you would be prepared for or have had more times to more time to equip your team to deal with those unexpected situations in a club situation versus a national team one. So then that's the question. Uh, how much of a problem does this present from a tactical analyst approach uh, when you're doing a post-game autopsy? And you're looking at certain players that just did not perform well. Maybe it's your, maybe it's your center midfielders. Maybe it's your wide midfielders. Uh, for whatever reason, they just were a little. They were not set up to succeed in the way that you thought that you had them set up to succeed. How much goes to the coach in that in that situation? How much goes to the player? I mean, again, it, it's a chicken and egg situation, right? right? It's it's one of those situations where you're just dying to be on the inside because I've grappled with this before and I'm guessing a lot of folks out there have trying to interpret a game and assign blame or assign credit. We just don't know. We kind of we kind of hit on some of this earlier. It's it's impossible to know for me to know when I'm watching the U.S. men's national team to understand fully this problem came from this factor. If this problem came from this factor, this percentage of blame should go here. This percent should go here. We, we just don't know. And so when you're trying to look back at a game, you sort of just have to accept that. If I'm trying to write a you know 1,200-word analysis of a U.S. win or U.S. loss, you know there's probably only 1,000 words of that that I can really dive into what happened on the field. And even then, you just have to live with the understanding that you you could be entirely wrong. I wrote back at the start of 
of the pandemic or, or I guess what felt like the start for us, I wrote a piece about the U.S. Men's National Team's win over Spain in the Confederations Cup. That was back when like retro content was all the rage because we had nothing else to talk about. I wrote a piece about that and I got it wrong, right? I got it wrong because I didn't have all the information about – I had this theory of what the U.S. did and maybe how they were a bit fortunate to get that result because of how much space they afforded certain players. And after getting some extra information after that article had published – I realized that the approach was different and I'd guessed wrong. And a lot of times you have to guess in that post-game autopsy. And the idea is just trying to think about it as critically and, and try to be as accurate as you can while also understanding that also understanding that that you or I don't have all of the information. Oh man, that sucks. <laughs> okay. Oh man. Uh I've been there. Uh not quite to that extent that you have, but yeah. Oh man, I I feel you on that one. It's all good. It happens, right? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and, and it's a learning opportunity. I think that uh, more than anything, you just kind of you take a step back and it helps you out, uh, I guess, in your situation, it helps you out better with the tactical performance. Yeah, I, I look at it from a job, my job perspective. Mm. So I, I think we can commiserate from from both sides of that because it's both our professions, right? We both we both had had to learn a little bit grow over that. That Look, you don't have all the information. You make, you make the best guess that you that you can. And you just learn from what from what you can, and trying to be humble in that. Like this is this is just something for me. We don't we just don't know, right? And I think trying to be charitable and how like I, I try to be charitable in how I talk about teams and understand that these are people. Um, like I don't know, there's just a lot that go. There's a human element here too, right? Where we just we can't know all the information. We're not going to be perfect, and going over over heavy going way too hard on the criticism sometimes doesn't help either. So I don't know. That's kind of an aside here, but there's, there's a call to be charitable and gracious and how we're doing some of this stuff too. So we kind of already dissected expected goals a little bit, kind of want to get a little back into it. We talked a bit about how you dissect the actual individual, um, how you have to be cognizant of the context and, and the buildup, but how do you take into account the indication of future success, because really that's where the really the bulk of expected goals brings uh, the heavy lifting that expected goals does. Right. Um, how do you look at it? I'm specifically looking at someone like Pepe, right, who Pepe has been, I, I think, two months without a goal. Uh, after a lot has been made about him, uh, it's, will he be consistent at the international level? Is his expected goals a concern? Is he a true finisher? I don't believe in that. Uh, has the fact that everyone, I like how you said that quietly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that to become a, an uh, actual talking point. We'll, we'll get into that. I'm sure much, much more down the road. Uh, but everyone's focused on, on, on expected goals within the, the short term. A lot of times. What does expected goals at a national team level mean for, for a player? Okay, so first of all, the, the Pepe thing that made me think of when we're talking about expected goals for Pepe, there was a tweet that Dallas did um, that had like his expected yeah. goals and had his goals, and, and they were really proud of it. And the Dallas social media account is great. Um, they're by far the best team social media account in Major League Soccer, um, so I don't want to hate on them. But it was it was kind of like a weird flex, but okay situation because Pepe has outperformed his expected goals, and, and I think that should be a concern, right? It should be a concern with a lot of these players who are coming up and and on these hot streaks, right? Chicharito at the beginning of the year having this crazy goal-scoring run. Will he, will he sustain it? The answer is almost always, almost always going to be no. And it, it was. Chicharito still had a good season. Pepe still had a good season. But we 
we see some some drops and some dips in performances there. At a national team level, there's there's challenges. There's challenges with applying that idea to games because of the sample size. Because if you already take a small number of minutes, right? You already take that, and then you strip it down even further using the Harrison Crow open play <laughs> even game state. Then then there's even less, right? It's it's hard to actually draw these long-standing conclusions. And so this is why at times it feels like we're guessing. It feels like I'm guessing. Can you still take things from it? I think so. You look at one thing that, that Jamin Moore has been championing is the U.S. men's national team's defensive record, which really doesn't get talked about under Greg Barother and how good they've been at denying shooting opportunities. That's true. The U.S. has been excellent in World Cup qualifying, by and large, at denying the opposition quality chances to score goals. And that's hugely valuable. And having that, and Berhalter cites that all the time, they're attacking expected goals, just their expected goals for and expected goals against. He talks about that. And I think there's dangers of diving too far into that pool and saying, well, the XG was great. That's cool because there's context surrounding. We've talked about that already. But there is there are things you can extract from it on an offensive side and on a defensive side. But yeah, for for individual players and for for teams, it it can be sort of a, a false flag at times, and it can also maybe be something that people lean too far into to say Pepe is going to be the chosen one. I already feel guilty because I'm going to go here. So expected goals against for the U.S. has been very good, very strong. Uh, I don't have those numbers uh, immediately in front of me because uh, there is a person who will go nameless that did not get them for me. Uh, I may not have reminded them, but they they promised me, so <laughs> it's their fault. They have been very good. They're easily in the top two, top three in expected goals against. I actually even think that they might be the top. Um, how do you point to that and say that's that's something that's going to be sustainable when you have a situation that they've been error prone and it brings about thoughts of LAFC? Hmm. Thinking about how how we apply expected goals in a defensive standpoint to to future, right? Talking about future success again, I think there's there's comfort in understanding that there will be those individual mistakes. There will be breakdowns. But part of the comfort that I find in the expected goals numbers for the U.S. men's national team is they have not put themselves in an abundance of situations to make those mistakes because they tend to have more of the ball. There's opportunities for them to deny the opposition shooting chances just simply because they have the ball, right? I watched Sevilla Real Madrid over the weekend and Sevilla possessed a ton under Lopetegui, who may be in another reality in our, in our metaverse, Harrison could have been the coach <laughs> of the U.S. Men's national team, right? They, they defend and their numbers defensively are good. They're, they're one of the top teams in La Liga defensively not necessarily because they do all the defensive things right all the time, but because they just don't have to worry about that stuff sometimes because they keep the ball. So there's there's certain applications of that idea with the U.S. men's national team. I think the personnel has also been strong, and there's comfort in that too. There are going to be mistakes, of course. Every team in the world, Manchester City, Barcelona in their heyday, there are mistakes there. But I think I think there's good encouraging signs in how this team has defended, just like there are concerning signs with some of the, maybe some of the more, reserved attacking numbers that this U.S. team has put out there. All right. So well, when we look at the bottom end line, <laughs> goals, goals against, do we as fans, media, people on the outside, do we get caught up uh, maybe too narrowly focused on that end result, especially at the international level? International level? I know that there's a there, there's such few games, so it, it kind of – it that just kind of ends up being the end talking point. But are, are we maybe – 
too focused or, or is that maybe okay that we are focused because there's just not there's just not enough evidence either way. We have to be focused on that to a degree. And I guess this depends on kind of how you want to think about soccer and, and how you want to watch these games. We're in the thick of MLS Cup playoffs, right? Five teams left standing. Um, as we can clearly see in the Western Conference, and I don't want people to be mad at me. I'm not trying to be mean to your team. But RSL and the Portland Timbers were not the best two teams in the West this season. And, and no matter if, if Real Salt Lake and David Ochoa and Pablo Mastroni are hoisting MLS Cup together, they they still will not have been the best team in Major League Soccer as a whole this season, right? That's that's pretty clear to see, and I, I think that might sound like more fuel for their fire, and I'm not intending it to be, but there's a reality in which in playoff situations, goals matter, goals matter above everything else, and that sounds like a Bruce Arena-ism, but it's true in any individual game, that's that's important. But then the question is of future success, right? And what's going to happen the next time and the next time and the next time. And that's why, that's why a lot of this other information is valuable. That's why expected goals are helpful. We talked about that already. That's why some of these other metrics that are being developed and analytical models and things like that are helpful. Goals added, things like that. They're useful because they help us gain more information about what happened this time, sure, but also what will happen, what could happen the next time, and which teams are set up best to succeed. So do we think too much into goals? Yeah, at the same time as they're important, we do think too much about them because the U.S. won two finals against Mexico, really got outplayed in both of those finals in open play over the summer, and everybody's feeling good about this team, and then they kind of get punched in the mouth a little bit as World Cup qualifying starts, and everybody's not panicking because it's not like the points were terrible coming out of those first couple windows, but there were concerns there. And I think if, if people take a little bit of a deep breath and look past the goal tallies and look past the final score lines for those games, then some of the warning signs were there and some of the signs were, were pretty clearly there earlier on. So yeah, sometimes we look at it too much. Other times it is important to quote, Adrian Heath goals change games. I think that's what he says all the time. So I'm kind of talking in circles at this point, but they're, they're important and they're, they're the most important part of soccer, but there's also a lot else there. All right. So <laughs> I'll be kind. We'll, 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 we'll close this and tie this all up. We've kind of been going in, in circle for, for a good 30, 45 minutes. Uh, last question, very near and dear to the hearts of those here with the ASA community. You should be scared. Are you scared? I am scared. Yes. Kellen Acosta. Oh, yeah. Through an assortment of different measurements, expected values, possession values, expected goals, expected assists, goals added. Uh, nearly every underlying events model <laughs> that exists. He is a below average midfielder. What the hell? what why does he continue to be called like i get it we get it he he has some really great moments like i i will i will go ahead and totally concede that he has some great moments it is such a double-edged sword with inconsistency and flawed decision making uh which it 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 bothers me help me out please (laughs) please oh i love that I love that so much, Harrison. It's a it's a great question. And this this is a perfect one to sort of wrap up with because I think there's a lot here that ties into our earlier conversation about patterns, about style of play, which we didn't expressly talk about. We kind of did through the idea of patterns and phases. 
there's a tie in there with this Kellen Acosta thing because yeah, I've I've looked through ASA's database and I've looked through the tables on online and all of those things, and they don't like him a whole lot, right? And that's that's the thesis of that question. With with the love that he gets, you think about how Robin Frazier and the Rapids play, and you think about how Greg Berhalter and the national team plays. They're different, right? But in some senses, Kellen Acosta's role was not all that different. This ties, again, back into the Yunus Musa conversation we had earlier. It's not all that different. Acosta for the Rapids does a whole lot of stuff. He plays left wing back. He plays in central midfield. He can play as a six. Most often, I think he plays a little bit higher in that midfield. But he runs. The Rapids prefer to defend more so than they love to be expansive in the attack. But they'll do both of those things. Acosta runs. He moves off the ball. He historically has whipped in some nice set pieces, although to be honest, I'm not sure what the the data is on that. So that could just be a a double-edged sword kind of thing like you mentioned. But he he runs, he moves off the ball. He can do a lot of different jobs at a somewhat serviceable level. At least he's comfortable in different spots. And coaches like that stuff. Then with the national team, it's the same deal. He got sent home from the first ever January camp under Greg Berhalter. Right. Likely, in hindsight, because he didn't fit the style. But now... When the U.S. is more about running and gunning and, and covering ground in midfield and having their eights press and having the six do what Tyler Adams does, Acosta's probably, from a physical profile, the best fit for that job that the U.S. has right now. Maybe he's not, but he's certainly one that Brother knows and is comfortable with in that spot. So I think when you think about the context around some of those numbers and what his coaches are asking him to do and what maybe some of the things that he does that don't pop up in the data, that that could be at least part of the answer for why Acosta appears to be loved by by fans who loved watching him in a final against Mexico earlier this summer where he was huge and, and involved in a lot of defensive situations that maybe don't pop up in the event data. There's there's part of that and then also understanding why his coaches might love him so much. So maybe maybe that answers your question, Harrison. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah. But those are some things that I think about with Kellen Acosta. I don't love your answer, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's fine. Uh, I'll take it. I, look, I look back uh, on this past summer and a couple games against Mexico, and I felt like he had he showed just there was just some really detrimental passes, and yeah. he continues to show that. And you kind of have to weigh weigh um, okay, how much does him pressing and pushing players into specific areas of the pitch? Um, how much better is he at that? Then the next guy up as well as will the next guy up make the same bad passes or have right. shaky decisions. It's, it, it's really honestly, uh, again, I'm on the outside, right? I don't see a, what an amazing teammate he probably is. And from everything I've heard, he is, uh, he's an amazing leader within that locker room. These things, as you just said, can't be captured. They can't, the, the human element you brought up earlier, um, they can't be captured. They can't be stored on a database right now, uh, and, and it's really hard to measure that and to, to say how does how much value do do we take from this? Um, so yeah, it, it's tough. Realistically, I I understand this. I just wanted to hear someone else's perspective that's not completely biased against uh, Kellen Acosta, like I have for six years. So well, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's I respect that. I do. I do. Um, I'm also not saying that I agree with that line of thinking. That's that's more so just one possible explanation that I can find. What what I think about here is the whole Matt Turner, Zach Steffen thing, which I can't believe that I just had to bring that up. And we almost made it through without having to talk about it. I, I really um, was scared to go down this route. So you go but, ahead. But you it's, dri- it's, You drive this car. 
Okay, and then I'm, we're both going to hop out and just watch it hit into a wall. Um, <laughs> it's this idea of assigning value, right? Is Matt Turner a more valuable goalkeeper in terms of your ability to win games than Zach Steffen? And according yes. to the numbers, he is, right? The answer is clearly yes, because his skill set is more valuable in that role with his shot stopping relative to Zach Steffen's distribution. I mean, that's that's what the numbers say. It's It's plain. It's clear to see. This, I think, is sort of a similar conversation. There's just a whole lot of more factors, I think, for an outfield player than there is for a goalkeeper. What Kellen Acosta provides versus what someone else who could do that job might provide. And we can't fully, fully in all phases of play with uh, an all-consuming understanding of the game, we can't fully attribute that yet. But what we have doesn't love Kellen Acosta. So really, then all I'm left to think is, well... Maybe it has something to do with what we don't have and, and what his coaches are asking him to do and his response to those instructions at club and national team level, blah, blah, blah. All the things I said earlier. I'm not saying that's a great explanation for it or, or a good line of reasoning for a coach, but that might be what's going on there. I'm going to jump out of the car here in a second, but I will tell you right now <laughs> that his distribution numbers from a data perspective, I get it from the eye test looking at him. There are times that I cringe. I'm not saying that there's not. There's not like, whew. okay, we got through that one. There are those moments with Matt Turner. Totally, totally agree. His distribution numbers really aren't that bad. And not only his distribution numbers, but really his sweeper keeper data. Like, I'm just saying, I'm just going to throw that out. I'm just, <laughs> just going to just, you know, maybe we'd have those numbers if Stefan played regularly, but you know, um, just going to drop the mic. So. <laughs> just going to walk away. I respect it. I think you've made the right decision. Sir, thank you so much for coming on and entertaining me and having a conversation with me this afternoon. I really greatly appreciate it. I hope other people listening enjoyed this. Uh, Joe, if you do, you have something you want to pitch? Anything you want to you want to plug? Uh, sure. Yeah, you can follow me at, on on Twitter at Joe C Lowry. Um, that's where I'll send links to all my stuff. You can listen to me by clicking some of those links. You can read some of the stuff I write by clicking those links. That's probably the spot to go to. And Harrison. Thank you, man, for having me on. This was tons of fun. Um, I'm sure I spewed a lot of nonsense, and hopefully there were some interesting things in there too. But this was this was a blast, man. Seriously, uh, I do want to point out that our listeners don't read; they look at tables all day and databases. <laughs> right. My bad. Right. Uh, so, uh, if you can somehow train Excel to to read the things that I write, then that's the happy medium. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm sure you have lots of graphics that we can consume that <laughs> data, uh, data graphics. Well, I'm sure that'll make us all happy. So. Oh, it's beautiful. All right, man. Thank you very much. Uh, listeners. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, we'll have more here coming up. Thanks. Welcome to American soccer analysis. Once more, I'm Harrison Crow. If you've made it thus far, you've listened to about two hours or more of this podcast. And I'm so happy you've reached us. I'm here with Jamin Moore. We're going to close this long podcast up about the men's national team. First, Jamin, I'm so happy you're here. You've done so much work with the scripts, with uh, the interviews. We've talked for hours about these subjects. Uh, We've texted. We've had live conversations. You've been in my living room. Uh, Before we jump into this, how the heck are you? you? You good? I'm doing good. You know, I, I, we've, you're right. Like there's been a lot going on and it actually feels like this is like been third or fourth on my list of soccer to do things, despite everything you just said. So, you know, it's, it's getting to the end, you know, now we just have, you know, MLS cup right in front of us and uh, of, of, a, of an MLS season. And, you know, I, I can kind of feel like, you know, the end of a season 
you know, feeling like it's been a, it's been a long time coming. And then, of course, the offseason kicks off right away. And that's really when, you know, a lot of the news happens and you really have to actually start paying attention again. Sure. Right. For San Jose, you have a lot of a lot of things, a lot of irons in the fire, I'm sure. Um but I uh, don't want to don't want to date this too much. <laughs> uh, we've spent about a month working on this podcast, right? Yes. You've had a chance to listen through my convos. Uh, we we talked to Bobby Warshaw. We we talked to Joe Lowry. Uh, both really amazing conversations. Let, let's kind of just kick it off first. Bobby Wash Warshaw, what did you learn? First off, you know, Bobby, uh, you know, talked about Alexi Lawless you know, being one of the nicest guys, you know, off air uh, that you can meet. I just want to say Bobby's for me, what Alexi, I think, you know, meant to him. Uh, Bob, when, when I first got into writing about soccer and, you know, publicly, and, and we wrote about, you might remember yeah, before G plus there was uh, the expected possession goals, the XPG, right? Right. Yeah. And Bobby reached out a number of times and just to ask questions and be like, man, I really want to understand this. Like, help me understand it. And then also, I think, gave me a lot of great feedback about how to better write for the audience. Like, who is, who's your audience here? What are you trying to convey? Uh, and I could kind of catch when something would go over his head. And I realized, like, you know, Bobby's the kind of person that I want to be able to understand this. Because if he catches it now, you know, maybe MLSsoccer.com at the time, which is where, where he was at then uh, is now able to, to, to pay attention to this. Like maybe, you know, that's something that translates into something bigger. And, and since then, we've had a lot of fantastic conversations. I've had him on a podcast myself. Um, and uh, I really do, uh, do appreciate uh, Bobby um, and uh, the things that I think he's trying to do uh, in the analytics space. And he's always had an interest in, in what we've done in ASA and uh, and, and sometimes he's got the wild takes and, and you know, we, we enjoy we enjoy that. And, and we even have a channel kind of dedicated to uh, to crazy takes out there named after him. But in a very loving way, we really uh, we really do uh, like him and and uh, enjoy his takes. And it was I thought uh, your conversation was just really interesting and very Bobby Warshaw type conversation, honestly. Well, it, I think you kind of nailed it. Uh, it, it. The difference between recording after and then the conversations in between, right? Uh, th- there was no difference, right? Like he, <laughs> he, he, he's the most sincere. And, and I think probably people that interact with him all have their own stories. Uh, ASA, uh, and people that I've talked to at ASA, they all seem to have their own Bobby Warshaw story where Bobby's reached, <laughs> reached out to them in some way and talked yes. to them about, hey, I don't understand. He's very open and honest about what he doesn't understand. And I love that about him. And I think that that's something that I wish as human beings that we all kind of, we all kind of took a page and just kind of all realized. I think that's something that as a growing professional, I had to be very honest and very real about as I continued to grow uh, and just admit what I didn't know. Right. I think that's, that, that's, that was one of the uh, primary maturing points in my life is admitting what I didn't know. And I think that's what is so amazing and refreshing about him is he's very open and honest. He has no hesitations reaching out to someone and saying, Hey, I don't understand this. Please explain this to me uh, on a deeper level so that I can understand, maybe not be where you're at, but so I can start walking myself down towards that path. And so I can start investing some more time. And, And I think that's just something that 
that is really fun and uh, you can just really engage. And like you said, yeah, we have channel uh, Oh Bobby that's that's dedicated to uh, that are t- dedicated to takes that are um, a little bit outside the norm. Um, and I don't agree with everything that Bobby says. Bobby says some stuff that is interesting uh, and challenging. But you know what? I think that's the kind of the fun because he has no problem then having a conversation about it. Whether you agree or disagree, there is no, we're not going to battle. We're going to have conversation and we're going to challenge each other on it. And we're both, we both might come down on different sides of this and that's okay. And I appreciate that about him. I appreciate the fact that, uh, and, and there's times that that's not okay, but at the same time, there, there's times that, you know, you certainly can have a conversation about some things and not everything's life and death. And I appreciate that. I appreciate the the sincerity behind the conversations he wants to have. Yeah, it's difficult for us as analysts to think we don't have all the answers. I mean, you know, I, hey, I, I broke I've broken down 25,000 goals and written 10 articles about where goals come from. You know, no one knows more about this topic than me, I feel. Right. So what can someone else teach me? What I really like about the way he approaches things is that inquisitiveness. He doesn't have all the answers and he's interested in what, you know, he can kind of take from, from each person he interacts with and, uh, and kind of expand his worldview around that. And I think that's amazing. The other day he reached out to something we had chatted like two weeks ago about, and we kind of left it open and didn't quite get to close it out. And sure enough, Bobby follows up and says, Hey, I've been thinking about this. I want to, let's talk about this again. And, uh, you know, that was, it's always amazing that, that someone like him comes back to, to be able to do that. So Bobby's a great guy. Uh, <laughs> I think we both agree on that. Um, I don't really care what, uh, if the person listening, uh, agrees with that or not. Uh, did you take anything else away from, uh, from our conversation? Cause that conversation was amazing and like, it literally went on for two hours. I don't know at this point in time, I haven't heard post-production how much Simon has uh, been able to, uh, to, to derive intelligent conversation that is going to make it to the final cut. But uh, I, you've heard the whole conversation. What are some of the key points that you kind of took away? One of the big things for me was really kind of the 90%, you know, or 93% versus 98% of a player, you know, ability on a given day. And I do think that there's something to that. I think there's something to this, uh, this whole thing about not every player is able to come and give 100% every single day. And as fans, it's really easy to see like a starting lineup get put out. And, you know, all of a sudden judge that and go like, why isn't this player in the lineup today? Or, you know, why, why isn't that player, you know, where we think they should be on the field or whatever the case is. Right. But, um, you know, Bobby kind of kind of came to that conversation with uh, some really good points around, you know, first off, not everybody is going to be at 100 percent every single game. And it's really up to the, the coaching staff to be able to evaluate, you know, who's ready to go, who's mentally there and ready to go for this particular game who physically is able going to be able to put in the work um, and be able to come up with some of those decisions and and i think you know you guys had this great conversation about you don't necessarily uh you don't necessarily have access to all the information even as an analyst of a team uh, or of a national team um you may think you know a lot about that team. You may think you know as well as the coach certain things. You may think that if this player comes in, things would be different. But frankly, we don't know, and you know we're not paid to know. Uh, that's what the coaching staff is paid to do, and ultimately they 
they live and die by those judgments. And um, I also think that sometimes where we're ready to throw in the towel on a coach or demand a change, um, the people you know who who make those decisions uh, have more access to that information and know when things are on the coaching staff a bit better than we do versus. Uh, when the coaching staff was put in a situation where they weren't going to really be able to succeed because of what was available to them and other factors that we're not hearing about. I think it's very interesting when we start talking about the human element and we start talking about that being ready mentally, uh, because it is, it's, it's, we even look at it. I, I look at it. I worked this weekend and I had to work on Monday, uh, as well. And I'll just tell you, like, my boss knew uh, I was there and I was ready to to try to give it my all. I was not mentally there. Like I, I was trying. I, w- I was definitely I have a laundry list of things of tasks that need to get done. Uh, it, it just was challenging and, and it presented its own challenges. And it, uh, I, I'm, I'm at the stage to where like this, this work is very important to me on a, on a, on an emotional level. Right. And it, has nothing to do with the fact that I just want to go home and relax and, and be with my family. There is a part of that. There's always going to be an aspect of that, but I mean, it's just, it's so challenging. You're tired, you're drained. And there is players that, you know, they're, they're constantly working out. And, and at a certain point in time in the season, it just becomes kind of challenging. Uh, it, it becomes challenging to go from uh, your club team to the national team travel to a to through three different customs or three different countries to get to your end's point and be like i'm ready to play and i i think that it's really easy to forget that it's i think it's really easy for us to sit here looking at ones and zeros looking at event data that we miss that and i'm so happy that bobby brought so much of that from the player perspective from the coach's perspective how many of those things that we miss right and the other thing that that he mentioned that really kind of caught me and and it caught me as as in someone who who deals with this in their job and i know i know you can relate uh and are relating to it is really this this aspect of the predictability. Um, soccer is such an unpredictable sport. I mean, let's take a look recently at Seattle versus RSL. I know this is painful for you. <laughs> I thought you were going to bring Seattle versus Columbus, so I'm actually this is this is this. <laughs> well, no, it, we, we could go there too. <laughs> RSL is a little bit easier for me to breathe into, so I I'm good with that. But let's just play with the probabilities here. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to replay what actually happened in that game a little bit for you, okay? Oh. So, here, here's my rec- here's my recollection. I'm not looking at the data right now, but here's my recollection. I know that RSL had zero shots in that game. Not on goal. Zero shots. Zero shot. It, this isn't this isn't Seattle 2017 TFC, right? Not like- Seattle 20, 2017 and then of course, uh, uh, you know, many of the listeners know I live in Seattle now. So, my son and I actually went to the game. You weren't available to go, otherwise we would have hung up with you. So, we went to the game on our own. I actually had my father-in-law with me and it's we uh, were we were the te- game he experienced. We were texting back and forth and I was saying very mean and nasty things <laughs> about the end of our <laughs> friendship. You were, not, you were not ready for what was going on in that game. So, but but let's let's replay it. So, my recollection is uh 22 shots I think it was for Seattle in that game. It sounds about uh, right. Something something like that, about the same number of corners in that game, which t- tells you about uh, how good, you know, the, the probabilities are on, a, on an individual corner kick. They're not, they're not that great. 
although people in Britain think they're the greatest thing and cheer for them. Um, you know, it's, and, uh, and what one expected goal out of that game. Now, what I can really appreciate is that RSL did a fantastic job allowing that many shots and maybe only one of them were even really dangerous, right? There's very little danger in all the shots that Seattle took in that particular game. But if I had told you before the game, one team is going to get zero and one team is going to get 22, what are the chances that we go to penalties and the team with zero is actually going to come out with a win? You would have been like at 0.001. It just doesn't add up, right? But but this game is so so funny. So when you can find predictability, managers crave that. That's yeah. the thing that they want more than anything else is they want to have feel like they have some control over this crazy game and the probabilities around it. Now, they may not voice it as probabilities. You might be Bruce Arena going like, you know, analytics are stupid. You know, the, the score is the only thing that matters. I know it's not his exact quote, but it's I just want to know. Story. I just want to know what I'm going to get going to get from my players. I know what I'm yeah. going to get from them over 90 minutes is, is often like that's the can line statement, right? I, I, I know, you know, I, I know what I'm going to get from my players. I want that predictability. I feel like if I, if I do this thing, I'm going to get the result that I'm looking for. Why? Because it worked the last time and maybe even the time before that. And maybe even I won a championship doing it this way in a different league and a different team in a different time. And, you know, and that's me kind of projecting the Matias Almeida, you know, earthquakes against the Matias Almeida at, at Chivas and Banfield and River Plate and, and all those places where he won championships. And of course, you know, he brings to the earthquakes and does what he thinks is going to, you know, has worked in those other places. And guess what? It hasn't worked. Three straight seasons of negative goal differential, barely making the playoffs one season with an eighth spot. And sneaking in with a negative 16 goal differential, which, yeah, as we know, doesn't really uh, go very well with uh, with the correlations with points. Um, so it's an outlier. And, y- you know, these are the things that, that we deal with in trying to analyze the sport. So let's transition to the man, the myth, the legend, Joe Lowry, who, oh former ASA guy. Uh, Is he like, former? He, he actually still has an account, and every once in a long while, all of a sudden, Joe will come out of nowhere and like say <laughs> something, and you know he's probably been lurking and reading everything we write uh, for a long time. It's very uh, suspicious when he, it is when very he pops suspicious up. <laughs> when he pops up. Yeah, he still has a Slack account, and uh, you know if we want to make sure he's not listening to us, I think we need to disable that. I, I I love it though. He always like anything that he says, it's like all of a sudden, boom, he's going to drop this. Like they just drop it a mic and conversation just threads. And everyone's just, you're just like, don't you have a podcast to do or something? And you, you record like three shows a day. Like certainly you've got somewhere else to be besides our Slack channel. He's, uh, uh, he's a, he's a uh, I mean, I don't know. Does he ever stop? Does he sleep? I don't know if he does. I don't I mean, think he's got the total I, yeah. soccer show now with Taylor, uh, which is a full time gig. I mean, they record pretty much every day. Right. Uh, he does yeah. MLS assist with uh, Jordan and Jolly. He writes for the athletic. He writes for MLS dot com. Like he's, uh, you know, between him and John Muller, they're basically taking over the soccer writing world right now. 
<laughs> right. We didn't get a we didn't get a chance to talk too much about Jordan. Uh, we talked a little bit about TSS, and that I feel like that's disingenuous because uh, Jordan and Jelly has just been uh, qu- been quietly, um, and I say quietly just because I feel like there's a lot of emphasis uh, on a lot of the male counterparts within uh, American soccer. Um, she's wonderful. Like, honestly, like her analysis is just very apt. And I really appreciate a lot of what she brings to the table. And I I wish I would have gotten a chance to say that to Joe, uh, to pass that along to her. That show MLS Assist, I want to say, kind of helped get me through uh, the early parts of of the COVID shutdowns and such. Yes, yes. That's when they basically started that up. And, you know, I'm, I'm not able to listen to it like I used to, um, but it was there for me at a time in my life when it, uh, it meant a lot. And I remember they used to record at like 1, 2 a.m. after MLS's back would end because we're on the West Coast, of course, but they're not. Right. And, right. you know, they would record the, these shows super late so that they would be ready for us the next morning to kind of, you know, hear about you know their their thoughts on on these mls's back games and that was just such at the time it just was so important and uh and nothing i've ever gotten to tell joe or jordan Uh, i don't know jordan but um but it uh that show meant a lot to me at that time no agreed and and over the last year and a half it's just been such a great uh staple uh in, in terms of review and tactical analysis and just really observant like i don't even necessarily want to call it tactical because i even feel like that's a disingenuous uh uh some of the observance uh observant behavior that they that they pick out goes beyond just tactical uh instruction right it goes to tendencies it goes to how a player just tends to genuinely carry themselves and you know jordan has insight to you know columbus and, and her past history i believe with colorado is that is that right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, so it it just you know she's a former player. There there's just so much insight, very similar to Bobby Warshaw uh, in a different way, uh, but similar that she gives that player perspective in a very uh, genuine way, and you feel it's very genuine. So that's that's all I have. That's that's all I have. I'm, I'm <laughs> well, I mean, it was a, it was a fantastic conversation. Just to kind of play back a little of the of the notes that I took out of it, you guys started off kind of really talking about. The, the event data and what what it does and does not kind of tell us. And I, I think getting into things like the key passes, which is something I obviously focus quite a bit on in, in the articles I write uh, for American Soccer Analysis. And then in the pressure data and, you know, you know what do these things tell us and, and what is it that we can take from that and what is it that we can't take from it? What's really interesting um, for us as analysts, and I almost feel like powerless in some ways talking about you know things like national teams is that we just don't have the same tools available to us at least in american soccer analysis that we do about the club teams right so it's easy to you know we got the game flows that elliot and myself and shahay worked on you know a few years back and we've got i mean that thing has more followers than i do uh so i'm always jealous of the account itself but, you know, we've got the game flows coming out for every game pretty much in North America, you know, except for the, nas- the national team. When the U.S. national team plays, like, we don't have one because, you know, that's not data that we have. And so 
you know, I feel like I can analyze almost anything and give you an answer on about anything. But then when it comes to the national team, like I'm as much of a fan as anyone else is because there's, I really can't put myself into the same type of analyst role that I can do when it comes to, to having data available to me to both match what I think I saw from an eye test perspective. You look at a game flow and you can see how a game kind of went back and forth through different spots in the game and the big events that happened. And you got expected goals and you got shot maps and you have all these other things that kind of confirm the eye test. One of the things I wonder is because we don't have those things with the national team, if how much that affects our ability to have a rational discourse in some ways. It is the national team. And so that's always going to have a part. But like if we had better tools available to to kind of the armchair analysts like us, like can we help set different narratives with the national team? And so I was able to get a little bit of that data over the last three cycles. And, and it's not even close to what we have you know, available to us normally. But it was like, wow, this is like a treasure trove here because now I can go back and kind of like, you know, challenge my thought process around some of the things I had, you know, observed with the national team. And am I observing those things right? Just having that little bit of data does help out quite a bit. Maybe we get a chance at the very end of this to get into some of that a little bit. It's not just, uh, it's, it's not just our respective thinking. It's also that kind of that crowd thinking as a whole, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you start having an echo chamber right even right even even with asa i I joked with bobby i think at one point in time or maybe it was joe that uh i like my echo chamber it's very nice uh asa is just kind of my echo chamber and i I like it it's comfortable i live there and i don't have to leave it um right and, and and with the u.s men's national team it's a much larger chamber and i think that once we kind of all get frustrated on a a canyon it's it's like yelling into the grand canyon and getting the echo back right because well and almost in that type of environment yeah you're going to get some response back on some level you're going to get somebody that says yes you are right about how you feel about that particular subject and you feel validated and that validation leads to some credence that yes what I'm thinking right now and my analysis of this is correct. And, and, and that's dangerous. Sure. And, and it always seems to kind of come back to the coach and, you know, is Greg Berhalter the right person to lead this national team? And I remember before when the same thing, you know, was happening with Jurgen Klinsmann, like in, in a weird way, the, the kind of like your Twitter, you know, space and the ASA space and everything like that almost only seeks to kind of confirm you know, yeah, well, exactly. Your confirm your bias, right? Yeah. Your, confirm your bias effectively. And part of that, I, I do think, is that we don't have the data. So when it comes to something like the San Jose earthquakes, you know, which I cover in depth, like I feel like no one's got more information about this team than I do. I have the most information about the team. Thereby, anyone wants to try to take me on in a public space, I'm fully armed to the hilt. I'll take them on. I think people learned like a couple of years ago to not do that with me. <laughs> you know, I talk, talked about sure, this before. Yeah. Like, yeah, I have, I have more information than you have. So, you know, you really want to challenge me on this topic and like no one does. Right. And I'm not saying I'm trying to be mean or anything like that. It's just like, well, I, I know I'm right and I can prove I'm right. And you can't really prove it. Right. It's a national team. It really is everyone's opinion. 
I have I have eleven years worth of a of databases uh, that <laughs> tell me everything I need from event data and even then some with some of the other sources that we're some starting to collect. Now, yeah. uh, so uh, we have a lot of information that can tell us. You know, uh, look, we have some very. If you've listened to this podcast, we have some very big stances that we take. And sometimes we've been right. I, I, I dare say that the majority of the time that in the end we've been right. Uh, there's been a few times we've been wrong, but there's been majoritively, I feel you're like. Right, you're right about Kellen Acosta, so you're good there. I, I'm right about Kellen Acosta. I'm right about Matt Turner, and those are the only two things I care about. So. <laughs> talk about Jackson Mule. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Nick Lima. You guys talk about Jackson Mule an awful lot, and you probably don't want me to do that, even though I'm the Quakes guy, so I won't. Do you want to talk about Jackson Mule? No, there's a guy I do want to talk about, though. Uh, I mentioned to you. I want to talk about Jordan Morris. I don't know who that is. Today. We got photos. Jordan Morris is back training with the national team. Now, this is December camp. Let's not get too excited and ahead of ourselves. This December camp is definitely an MLS-heavy camp, also a camp to get to try some new stuff out, right? It's, it's, it's not, you know, any, any World Cup qualifiers or anything like that, right? But it was so great to see pictures of Jordan Morris, uh, you know, in, in – you know, United States national team. It's just good here. to see him out going. Like, it's good to see him out, since, right? since sincerely, like, it's so good to see someone that's had so many physical ailments and so many physical challenges just can just find ways so to, hard yeah, to work so hard to, to overcome them. Yeah, it, it's just it's inspiring. Like on uh, like on a human level, regardless of if you're a Sounders fan or you're an MLS fan or you just want to see the best come from the U.S. men's national team, it's such a great human story. Not only that, like he had his opportunity to to go to England and and play and show what he can do and give it a shot, you know, in Europe. And he got hurt so quickly. And then he's right back home. Right. Yeah. And having to rehab. And now he's back out, you know, playing with playing with the Sounders again. Not, not uh, you know, I don't mean that as a step down because the Sounders are a wonderful organization. Honestly, probably the best top to bottom organization in Major League Soccer because every single year they're there in, in the thick of it. They're in the playoffs uh, every time. And uh, and more often than not, they've got a chance at, at going to the MLS finals. So if there's Jay, you know, he said his goodbyes. Like, yeah, let's just say what, like, yeah, what it was. Well, like, he said his goodbyes. I didn't, he, I didn't fully believe it. And look, look, he's back. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he will be back next season. Now this season's obviously done. But but I mean let let's focus on the national team because nobody had I don't believe from a results perspective right the goals and the assists and the things that we you know that that fans and and most of us you know value very highly uh, even though we understand you know assists are, are a little bit kind of you know random random luck <laughs> you know attached to some of those things uh, because you you, you can't uh, decide whether the shooter is going to put the ball in the back of the net or not. Unless your right. name is Nicholas Ladero. Unless your name is Nicholas Ladero. I'll give that one to you. Um, but, but no, I mean, the top producer for this, uh, for the national team, if I remember right, like, tw- I don't know, it was 2019 and 2020, but through at least a one-year stretch in 2019 and 2020, he was the most productive national team player for this team. And I think we all, I mean, not sure we were disappointed in, in him you know, getting injured, uh, you know, trying to live his dream in, in, in England. But I think a lot of us were just like, oh, my goodness, the national team. 
like we got World Cup qualifying coming. We're not going to have Jordan Morris for World Cup qualifying. Like that was a that's a big blow, um, you know, at the time because he was almost written in pen into lineups at that point for World Cup qualifying. I mean, yeah. And, and as he should be, like he over the uh, prior to being injured was one of the most dominant players in Major League Soccer, and was coming into his prime. Uh, was coming into going abroad, playing for a uh, on a much more challenging stage. Had pretty much done everything that you could possibly ask of him at the level that he was he was playing, and, and honestly, like. I'm really interested to see the difference that this that the U.S. men's national team looks like with him included in that roster, because I think that it takes a, a good step forward to be. Per- I mean, honestly, I know I know that we had some conversations with Bobby about what that difference is when you're talking about like somebody like Paul Areola versus uh, Jordan Morris or, you know, even uh, Brendan Aronson, who I think the world of. I legitimately think Brendan Harrison is like one of the best things in sliced bread. Uh, that being I, said, I'm, I'm with you on that. I'm completely with you on that. He has been the most productive winger for this team in World Cup qualifiers. If we didn't have Brendan Aronson right now, I would actually be probably really concerned about this. Agree. I've agreed. But adding Jordan Morris to this team, like I don't care if you add him as a starter or if you're talking about him off the bench. Like that just brings so much more depth and so much more talent to a team that already has a lot of talent there, but has talent that I mean, let's just let's just state like Aronson, Olsic, I they they just been injury prone. And we, and we haven't had Gio Gio Reyna. and he another another winner, yeah, right? They're, they're Gio Reyna. And, and I don't even know how I dropped the ball on him, just from the standpoint of he's been injury prone as well. There. There's it's easy to forget these guys haven't been there and there's so much depth there but there's so much depth that's i don't want to say inconsistent but just has some challenges that uh, you know some some physical challenges that are being presented to them that you know what Uh, the more depth that we have the better off we're going to be but here's what we don't know harrison and let's go let's circle this back a little bit to the topic we we uh we talked about a little bit at the very beginning of this are we getting a jordan morris that's at 100 percent are we getting a Jordan Morris that's at a 90%, 95%? Like, 80%, you know, one of his big, 80%. Big, yeah, exactly. Like one of his big weapons is, is speed. And so, you know, one of the things that you want to believe when you put Jordan Morris out there, and I think it fits, I think he fits excellently into Burhalter's system, is Burhalter's looking, you know, to stretch defenses and to put guys on that have a bit of pace, can get in behind and be a threat. And, you know, he talks about this constantly, right? The verticality and all the other stuff. Um, and, and when you think of like a Jordan Morris at 100% and what possibilities does that open up? Even if he's coming off the bench for Brendan Aronson in the 60th minute, you've just been dealing with Brendan Aronson for 60 minutes and now you've got to deal with Jordan Morris at 100%. Like that would be tough on any team, right? But if he's 80%, you know, is that going to be a step up, right? Or or is it going to be sideways? Or you know what you, you know what I'm saying? So I think we've we still kind of don't quite know where he is, and until he's stepping onto the field for a national team and a World Cup qualifier, we can really get a sense for what we're what we're seeing from Jordan Morris. I think you know that'll be the important thing. But I'm, right now, I'm just happy to see him. You know, regardless of what percent he's at, and if he feels 
healthy and comfortable being out there and he feels like he can give it a go and and he's not going to 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 re-injure himself or anything like that you know and and he's happy then then i'm happy seeing him i'm gonna i'm gonna take a page from baseball and and my history with baseball for a second And, and furthermore uh tv shows i love tv shows there was a tv show a few years ago called leverage love leverage so one of the main characters goes to prison for a point in time. And it's said that when criminals go to prison for a certain amount of time, and this was in, within the show, I don't mean this in, in general, uh, it was stipulated that, you know, they usually come back with uh, shades of another skill. We saw this with Jordan Morris and we see this with uh, baseball players. The older that they get, they kind of seem to branch out and they seem to, uh, add a little bit of another skill. Sometimes the older that they get, they, they, the pitchers seem to work on their curveball. Their curveball looks a little bit better than just their fastball, right? Especially fastball pitchers. Bartolo Colon uh, developed his changeup. Uh, Felix Hernandez developed his changeup. You know, pitchers kind of start rounding out their game, right? Jordan Morris started doing this uh, after his first leg injury. Um, he really, really worked on his left foot and his touch. You know, that was that was a huge issue with his game. I kind of am interested to know what this iteration of Jordan Morris looks like because y- you hit on it. Jordan Morris is about speed, right? But one thing that we see with some of the higher echelon players that when they come back, they – have had time to study themselves and film and know what their deficiencies are. And they've had some time to think about it and time to work on some of these, some of these little idiosyncrasies, right? Um, I kind of wonder what Jordan Morse has been doing for the last few months and how he might be a different player because I, I and I fully expect he's going to be a different player than what we've seen. And, and the, the version of, Jordan Morris that we're going to see over the next year is going to be different than what we saw two years ago. And it's certainly going to be different than what we saw five years ago. Uh, that was very speed conscious, very speed based, very, uh, very chaotic, very uh, looking just to create something. Uh, he's evolved. He evolved into being very, uh, very cognizant of how he would caught in, cut in off his foot. He, he had more confidence confidence on which foot he was going to use i'm interested to see what this iteration of jordan morris looks like now uh with some time off so uh, i'm just going to put that in there and, and slip that in there and, and let people kind of stew and think about that because I, I i i that's something that i've been thinking about lately yeah i'd be, I'd be really happy to see it I, you're right when players have to basically you know run out there every three days they don't really have the opportunity to work on various aspects of their game in fact when uh when uh, they announced chris wondolowski was going to become the assistant uh not not the assistant general manager but the assistant to the general manager kind of like Thunder Mifflin <laughs> reference there. Uh, and, and he he even knew that too. I think he went, if I remember right, he went on Jason Davis's show on Sirius XM and actually made fun of it himself. Um, but uh, he's going to be Chris Leach's, uh, you know, kind of a assistant. But one of the things that he mentioned is that his part of his job is going to be to help the players develop the skills that they're not going to get from their day-to-day practices to point out, you know, work with them on, on video reviews and things where 
they almost can have a plan of, of how they're going to mature, how they're going to grow, what they're going to work on, and what's their kind of like development uh, path need to look like as a pro, because a lot of times it's about winning the next game. And the thought is, you know, let's get, a, let's get ready for the next opponent, the tactics we're going to use. We're going to work on a specific thing around set piece plays or whatever the case is, and that's how we're going to get ready for this next opponent. And that's all you have the time for. And you don't really have the time for personal improvement. And you're right. These players who end up having time off quite often come back with other improvements that they're making. And uh, I'm really interested, you know, to see the, see the same thing. We've been ta- talking for about 45 minutes. Listeners, you guys have stuck with us for so long. So long. This has been such a, uh, a joy that we've been able to put forth. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and Jamin, thanks you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for for giving me some of your time. I know you're on like I, we joked about Joe being on a thousand podcasts. Like I feel like you're constantly uh, involved in people don't necessarily see it, but you, I feel like you're in. You you said earlier three or four different things. Like you constant. We've been talking about this for a month, month and a, a month and a half. Getting this ready, producing it, this length of a podcast, it takes some time. It takes effort. It takes focus. You've been doing a lot of that um and you you've done the 95 percent, harrison so i think you've got about what three hours of content here yeah you know for for the listeners uh thank you for all your work on this i know you've got some great plans going forward for this podcast that thank you so much for listening thank you so much for uh in in some small way contributing to asa uh it means the world to us We will be back. We will have more episodes just like this. Uh, Until then, enjoy the soccer.